Hello. I am so angry. Yeah. Yes. Because of your story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This, I, I think this is going to be, uh, by the way, this is the weirdest thing podcast. I'm yes. Scotty Milder. My name is Amelia Ampuero. We're your ghost hosts. Yeah. Uh, here to tell you about the weirdest stuff we found on the internet, or in my case, the most infuriating enrage. You know what? I'm, I don't want to oversell it. I'll just say I'm mad. And we're here to talk to you about the weirdest things we found on the internet. Yeah. And um, my story, we'll get to it. Like, I know, because you've been talking to me and you were posting on our <laughs> <laughs> social yes. media about how enraged you were. And I was like, well, I've I'm, I'm got a good story to go along with yours that's maybe less enraging. And then I realized uh-huh. the only reason why my story is less enraging to me is because I've already read a lot about it. Oh, great. So I've kind of already already processed my rage on this story but it's actually a pretty rage inducing on its own if you don't have pre-existing knowledge of the story but we'll get there we'll get okay so welcome to the rage machine um but before we jump into our stories can we talk a little bit about Candyman? yes please let's do it so should we avoid spoilers or should i just like throw a little spoiler time code warning in here i mean i think I mean, I would prefer to avoid spoilers, but that's me. Okay, I'll throw the little time code warning in anyway, just just in case. But yeah, well, we'll, we're going to try and kind of avoid the major spoilers. Hey, everybody, this is Scotty. So like we said, we tried to avoid getting into too many detailed plot specifics for the new Candyman film. But if you'd really like to go in knowing nothing about either the new one or the original, uh, please go to about 25 minutes and 25 seconds. Thank you. Uh, so we last weekend... We did got, a double feature. We did a double feature. We got together at your place to watch the original Candyman. Because I think you had said you hadn't seen it since like it came out, right? I mean, it's been like 20 years since I've seen it. Yeah. I'm, I mean, there's maybe we watched it in college with like, yeah. you know, me and, a, and some friends or whatever. But that was probably if I watched it, then that was the last time. Yeah. And I I mean, that's a movie I watched like <clears throat> once or twice a year since it came out. So I've seen it. <laughs> 30 to 50 times probably Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's it's in my top five favorite horror movies of all time what uh, before we get into the new one i'm just really curious because we haven't actually talked that much about it but what did you think of the original like what was your takeaway for me it works as a scary movie as a horror movie because i think it's it's really well done like yeah there is a limited amount of people being stupid like i think that you can i guess (laughs) spoilers for the 1992 version no you know what if you haven't seen the 1992 version yeah we're not gonna worry about that one yeah we we, (laughs) you have you have no you have no power here um ellen kills her husband at the end spoiler (laughs) plus nipples that's that's the moral of it yeah plus nipples excited 13 year old scotty watching (laughs) virginia madsen's nipples in a bathtub but anyway no okay so anyways (laughs) it has a limited amount of people being stupid i mean there's definitely stuff that I mean, I guess I want to say that like me as somebody who has watched horror films, who has an interest in true crime. I mean, I feel like I could say this, who like grew up in a Latino household, Mm -hmm. who like all of these things, there's a lot of stuff that I'm like, why are you doing that? 
but it all works within the realm of her character. Like her character would do that stuff. Her character does feel like, were you and I talking about this or did I read this somewhere? Like the privilege of not having the Mm -hmm. fear of going into these spaces. Right. Yeah. We were, we were talking about it a little bit and like, yeah, I, I agree. Like, I think like one thing that always bugs me about the way people talk about Candyman, and I think some of this comes from the sequels, uh, mm-hmm. the the first two sequels, I should say, mm-hmm. not the new one, is that it, it kind of gets reduced to like, you know, an, just another slasher film. Right. And really, it's not, I mean, it's not a slasher film. It, it's very much doing something different. And, you know, one of the things I'm not typically a huge fan of slasher movies, and one of the things I don't typically like is that the characters just do stupid things arbitrarily because the screenwriter and director need them to do stupid things so that they right. can get killed. Right. Like this, the stupid things that Helen does in the original Candyman seem very realistic. Like they're yeah, not they're... stupid because she's stupid. They're stupid because she thinks she's being protected by her white. Like we didn't have this language back then, but it's essentially she thinks her white privilege protects her. Yes, 100%. And, and yeah. she's not the final girl in like a typical slasher movie sense because she's kind of the one who fucks everything up. And uh, gets it going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you know, poor, poor uh is her friend's name Beverly? Am I getting that right? Uh it's not Beverly. What is what her is name? it? <laughs> I, but her, I've seen her, the movie 50 times. I shouldn't yeah. remember it. <laughs> and this is awful. Um, but her best friend, you know, like is there. I mean, there's a lot of sacrifices, you know, like people who are sacrificed uh in the telling of that that story that are pretty enraging and that she's like, you know what? I'm going to keep going. Cause like, I think I've got like a really good beat on this. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's frustrating, but again, it's not frustrating because I'm like, this makes no sense. It's frustrating because it makes total sense. Right. Right. Exactly. Yes. It's yeah. You're, you're watching a privileged white woman do privileged white woman things yes and then have to deal with the consequences of yes. her doing these privileged white women things. right and her she... friend's name is bernadette by the way i just they... okay up. so i was not completely off base no sorry, i was sorry, like bernadette. beatrice right uh, bethany um... like no <laughs> But and the thing is, is that she also leaves like, you know, she leaves a a trail of black bodies in her wake as well. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And like, yeah, there's some white folks in there, too. And, and, you know, some of those white folks. Mm. I kind of think every white folk in the movie deserves to get it because they're (laughs) all kind of like. I don't know about the. The, the psychiatrist like That's he's right. just a dude That's doing right. his job you know what i got confused with him and the dude from silence of the land yeah. <laughs> well it's like you and know that guy 100 deserves to be eviscerated by right by whenever you see the smarmy psychiatrist in an early 90s movie i mean it, it like you just think you're watching silence of the lambs but precisely um, so yeah and i think i think the if we want to move on to the sequel the spiritual sequel as it's yeah been sort of i mean it's, it's it's a legit sequel i mean like, it's a it's sequel. a straight up sequel yeah. yeah i thought it like built on the mythology really well mm-hmm. i know there have been a lot of like criticisms of the film i am not going to speak about how responsibly they handled race or not like not being a black person and if there mm-hmm. is a black critic out there who had thoughts about that like that's their opinion and and that is a valid viewpoint 
I, I know you had talked, you had said that, that some of the reviews said that the, the race issues were pedantic. Is that what you said? Didactic. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't know. I thought it was a good movie. I thought it was a, I thought it was a I, real good time and it fucked me up for days. Yeah. I loved it because, you know, I, I love the original, but it is, it was a very progressive film in terms of like its racial, yeah. uh, I guess politics, but for yeah. 1992, I don't know that we would call it progressive by tw- 2021 standards. I mean, if the movie was like a shot for shot remake right. now, we'd be like, guys, we can't do this. Yeah. But... Well, I mean, it would, cause it like, you know, kind of tiptoes up towards like a white savior. Mm-hmm. Although it really kind of undermines that as well. One thing I loved, or a couple things I should say, I loved about the new one, uh, just on a horror movie level, it was mm-hmm. fucking scary. Like it was so scary, I thought. I mean, I because like I've seen the original, you know, 30 to 50 times. So mm-hmm. it's like as much as I love it and I love the filmmaking, it doesn't scare me anymore. It did when right. I first saw it when I was, you know, 13 years old. But right. you know, I, I pretty much have that movie memorized. Right. So to and then the sequels, the original sequels from the 90s, Farewell to the Flesh, and then I think Day of the Dead. They're not, they're just they're not good. And what they do is they reduce the candy. Those are where the Candyman character gets reduced to like a slasher. Ah, uh, okay. Um, they're very like direct to video, you know. So it's just like that character hasn't been scary to me in mm. decades. Yeah. This movie successfully made Candyman scary for nice. me. Nice. Yeah. I also really loved Nia DaCosta. You know, one thing I've always appreciated about the original is that it really is kind of an art house film. It's sort mm-hmm. of, it's got a very art house, very like European stylish direction to it. You know, it's beautifully shot film. I thought Nia DaCosta, like she built on the art house style of the original, but very much has her own style. Like she's not replicating the style of the original. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I had seen something that said that they felt like a review that had said that it didn't feel like Chicago was a big enough character. Like it felt like the city was really enough. Anonymous. Um, I didn't think I've read that too. I didn't feel that at all. No, granted, I've never lived in Chicago. Chicago is not my hometown. None of those things. But I felt like I like I don't know. Like Chicago doesn't feel like New York, which doesn't feel like LA, which doesn't feel like San Francisco, which doesn't feel like Dallas. You know, like they yeah. like those cities. E- even if I don't know the architecture, a lot of times for me, I can just tell a shot of a city just by the feel of it. And this felt very Chicago to me. I mean, we might yeah. we might have had the benefit of like watching the two movies back to back because Chicago is very present the original like Mm -hmm. it's very visually chicago right and so like we were kind of bringing that into the new one but i thought you know because the thematically the new one is really dealing with like issues of gentrification and things like that i thought like seeing them back to back within a 24-hour period like you really see that just like crystallize that idea of gentrification crystal yeah yeah and then i loved like this is like I'm trying to be a little bit vague, but like I loved what they did with the Candyman mythology. Mm, me too. Um, and this is like if like I'm gonna try and not be too spoilery, but this is where like if you haven't skipped ahead yet, you probably should. Okay. Like one thing I think that hurts the franchise of Candyman is that Candy like Candyman is supposed to be an urban legend. And the whole right. idea of an urban legend is like like it's our belief in it is what makes it real. And every, and if you hear any urban legend, like every version of a urban legendy story is always a little different depending on who's telling it. 
right the sequels to Candyman. you know the original Candyman's very much about that idea that like it's her belief or lack of belief in him that compels him to appear yeah but it's not clear that Candyman is the character that was described or that was like you know the the artist who fell in love with the white woman got her pregnant and then was lynched essentially it's not clear if he's like a ghost of that character or if he's like a manifestation of the urban legend itself right 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 when you get into the sequels i should say the shitty sequels like it very much makes it like no that guy he is like the ghost evil spirit whatever of that guy who's killed it makes Candyman too specific uh. and it gets away from this idea of it being an urban legend and what i thought that mm. they did in the script for this new one is they really moved back to that idea of Candyman as this he's a non-specific entity that really is just like a manifestation of this like cycle of violence. Right. And there's like every version of Candyman you can imagine is as both real or unreal as we make want to make it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that was just genius. And then the last shot of the film, I won't describe it, but as a fan of the original, I was just like, fuck yes. Like, okay. how it all ties together. <laughs> okay, hold on, because I want you to do this. Uh, like, literally bleep or cut this out. But you'd mentioned that when we were texting. And I can't, I don't know if I, like, blocked it out or if I've, like, repressed the memory. But I don't remember the final shot. I'll just, I'll give the the dialogue, the last line of the movie, tell everyone. No, yeah. See, I like I don't I think I Oh my god, you're the worst. Okay, everybody, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna okay, there's gonna be a big long bleep. Okay, okay, thank you. Yeah. Ugh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna leave my disgust for you in here, but I'll bleep 100 percent leave it in there. But like you had mentioned that when we like I said when we were texting, and I was like, yeah. And then I well, became, it is it's I, very much it's it's uh like if you're only like sort of a fan of the original or not like haven't seen it 50 times, it probably doesn't land the way it does. But the way that final shot ties back to the original right and really like brings it all together like mm -hmm. for me as like a super fan of that original film it's it was just like i almost like wanted to stand up in the theater and like pump my fists like it, i was I so happy i would have walked away from you had i know you done you, that. yeah you would have i would have left you and my nachos <laughs> yeah. in the theater and walked away yeah. awesome can i address just a couple of the criticisms of the film before yes. we move on? um just in like i i'm with you i don't want to i i have read some black critics who have had some issues with the film and i'm not going to speak to like how they should or shouldn't react to the film it, yeah. it seems like the the reaction with black critics well critics across the board but specifically uh some of the black critics have been like either like very positive to the film or i don't know that i've read any like takedown of the film so much as a like mm, like there's a lot to tangle with here and some things that the movie maybe misses the boat on or right. misses, you know so but one one of the criticisms that i've been thinking about this has come from both black and white critics mm -hmm. is the idea of the film being too didactic mm -hmm. and what i would say is like it's unsubtle it's purposefully unsubtle in terms mm -hmm. of the message Mm -hmm. But I think we talked about this in one of our earlier episodes where it's it's that James Cameron quote where he was talking about Terminator or Terminator mm -hmm. 2. And it's basically, so I do need a, what are you going to say? 
it was right there and I didn't want to like do a big like you into the yeah. microphone so I was trying to give you a warning and then right when I did the sneeze was all <laughs> and like disappeared Hi. yes what a dick um, okay no it, it's it's the it's the idea that there's James a difference Cameron. there's mm-hmm. a difference between because you know we talked about Terminator 2 being like so like hitting you over the head about being like a father-son film you know right. um but there's this real difference between being like bad at subtlety and being purposefully unsubtle right and I felt like whether it works for you or not I don't feel like the unsubtleness of the new Candyman is unintentional mm-hmm. like I think I don't think it's bad storytelling I think it was very much like a choice that they made well, and I know that, I mean, you know, I know everybody's doing the thing of being like Jordan Peele's new Candyman. And it's like, no, it's Nita Costa's Candyman. It's Jordan Peele's like deeply involved with. Yes. Film, but it's but, Nita Costa's film. Yes. Like, um, and it doesn't feel like it, like I've watched, you know, Get Out and Us. And it doesn't feel like either of those films. It feels very different. Right. But my thing is, is that it's like, those are not movies that are subtle about race either no not at um, all and, and so i don't I think, think it hurts the film at all and i think it's interesting that that is the critique that it's like well suddenly now we're dealing with stuff from these particular artists and we want them to be subtle but like you know we're also kind of talking about a time in the world where the the time for subtlety has passed like we've been trying to be mm-hmm. subtle about stuff and and cautious and careful and respectful and you know educational and all of those things about educating people about these issues and it it just hasn't worked yet so I mean well and that actually gets to the next piece of criticism I wanted to kind of talk about which is the this one's this one's trickier for me to talk about because this is here I am a non-black person talking about this criticism Uh, but one of the criticisms I've read that I don't think is invalid but I've had to really think about is this idea that the film is kind of just yet another like it's critiquing how the art world traffics in black pain while the film is also trafficking in black pain and that's like that's a tough one and what mm-hmm. i thought about that like i i guess where i come down on that is that argument that's kind of an argument against the horror genre or or maybe against the horror genre being the vehicle to tell these type of stories which i think you know you can mm-hmm. make that argument but if you're dealing like if it's a horror movie like the point of horror if it's not just like jump scares and whatever if there's an artistic purpose to horror is a genre it's to process pain and fear Mm. so it's like to me it's like you can't expect this movie to be a horror film and deal with these issues and not wrestle with the the generational trauma that the film is wrestling with so i i think for me i guess my take on that would be if if you're if your point is that, you know, we need more uplifting, empowering black narratives, I 100% agree. Right. Um, I just don't think it's like, you can't expect a Candyman movie to be that. And and along with that criticism I've read, and actually this is a criticism I've seen mostly, I think from white critics, is that they were disappointed that it wasn't only white people being killed in the film. And it's like, they wanted it to be like, <laughs> Candy Sorry, man. I just I realized that what my face must have done in yeah. that moment. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay. okay. Well, I th- I think the idea is that like people kind of misinterpret the characters. Like you know, Candyman is here to avenge. It's like he's a superhero. He's like or he's like Daredevil or Punisher. He's here to avenge uh, the pain of black people 
you know, Mm -hmm. but that's not what he's doing in the original film. And I feel like that's just a simplistic take on what the character is. Like he's not a vengeful spirit. He's a perpetuation of a violent cycle. But it's also not, I mean, again, if you need to bleep out, bleep out, but like, it's also not like, I mean, how many black victims were there? In, in the new Candyman. I mean, I know there were, I know there was, you know, some, but when I'm thinking of the people that like died. Yeah, yeah no, in, in, in the original, were... it is mostly black victims. And a lot of it's because we're t- being told the story of what is it? Like Ruthie, Ruthie, Ruthie Jean. In I the think. movie, she's Ruthie Jean. In it's real life, she was Ruthie, Ruthie May. May. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, we're hearing that story. We're hearing the story of the kid in the bathroom, things like that. Right. It's really only, I think the first white victim in the original is the, the psychiatrist. I, I could be wrong, but I think that's true. Because even her friend Bernadette is black. Right. Um, Wait, are we talking about the original or the I'm new talk- one? I'm talking about the original. Okay, okay. In okay, the okay, new okay, one, okay. definitely the vast majority of Candyman's victims are white. Yeah. But I didn't feel like the movie was trying to set us up as like itself up as like a feel good, like death wish, revenge, only the right people are getting it kind of thing. Because I, I just think that just seems too simplistic to what I think Nia DaCosta was trying to do with the film. But that's what I'm saying. Even in the new one, there's still like the majority of the victims that I can remember are still white or non-black. Yeah, yeah they're white. Uh, but I'm saying but what I'm saying is that like, but it's not simplistically trying to like have us revel in that. Like, isn't it cool to see the white people get killed? Like that's, that's not what she's doing. It's like, right. It's just, it's just a much more complex depiction of what that character means than I think like that to me is that's like wishful. That's a wishful thinking criticism. And my thing on that is like, well, but that's not what this movie's doing. Right. So I'm, um, I mean, I, I like, I get it and I'm confused by it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I no. get it. Like I, I understand it, but I'm also like it a little bit seems like if you're hearing that from white critics, that that is like, I need, I need something to. Yeah. To I mean, that, that's, about if with that feels like a little bit of a disingenuous criticism. And then the other disingenuous criticism, this is the last thing I'll say. And then we can move on. It's just, okay. I've seen, this is, this is just stuff I've seen on my Twitter. Mm, of people being like who actually like the movie but they're being like fuck clive barker and his original story he didn't even care about black people like it's not even about black people and my response is yeah it's not it's he's a liverpudlian british writer writing about working class liverpool like it's a different story they took the bones of the forbidden which is his original story and Mm -hmm. then adapted it to cabrini green chicago for the film but he he wasn't writing the story. So like, it's just weird to be mad at him that he. I don't get people anymore. I'm tired yeah. <laughs> of people. I'm really, like really tired just... of people. There's, there's, here's the thing is that the internet has really made everybody believe because they can, you know, go to a website and type things and throw them into the ether that every opinion is worthy of attention. And guys, it's not, it's just not. And yeah. so I, I just yeah. think that that's, I like, again, that sounds like an opinion. It, I feel like that's when you are around a small child and they're like, I have, I have something, I have something, I have something to say. I have something to say. And then when you get to them, you're like, well, okay, what, what do you want to say? And they're like, um, um, 
Um, and it's like, look, you know, look, big boy 487. Like, nobody actually <laughs> asked you about your opinion on Candyman. Yeah. And so, like, you could have just kept it to yourself and kept it moving. Yeah, it's just, it's just, that was, I, I've seen, like, I wouldn't say, like, a bunch of tweets like that, but I've seen a few. And I'm just like, let the story be the story. It's, it's, and let the movies be the movies. Like, they're just, they're different. I am learning that if there is a piece of work that I have, a piece of like creative content that I have consumed, I need to not, like there are some like, you know, TV shows and movies and stuff. There are some like writers who like earn their living doing that, whose stuff I will read because they generally have some like thought provoking things to say, like responses to it. But I like- the permission that so many people feel to shit on something mm-hmm. just for the sake of of getting Shitting on something yeah. yeah and just for the sake of like creating fucking internet karma and traffic and all that stuff likes and retweets and all that stuff is it it it, it lessens my enjoyment right. of the thing because then i just get mad yeah. um no so, I, I yeah think that's a lesson that's, i'm learning that's like the that's and like i said that's the twitter sphere dumb take I think Mm -hmm. like some of the critiques about, you know, whether this film is really the right vehicle to deal with these issues, I think are valid areas of discussion. I don't Mm -hmm. necessarily agree, but I read with interest some of those pieces. Right. And it made me think more deeply about the film and my feeling about it. The like fuck Clive Barker takes. I'm like, fuck off. Like that brings nothing useful to any conversation. And I'm sure Clive Barker is like crying about it on his way to the bank. Yeah. You know, yeah. he's like wiping his tears with hundred dollar bills. Exactly. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. All right. So to my, I guess I'm going first this week. So, like I said, this story is maybe not going to be quite as enraging as yours, but it's going to be enraging in some similar ways. Okay. So I'm going to start actually with a cold open. All right. Okay. So this is a quote from an article from The Guardian. I'm not going to read the title of the article yet. Mm -hmm. Um, This is the opening paragraph of that article. It says, quote, glass shattered high above 7th Avenue in Manhattan before dawn on a cold November morning in 1953. Seconds later, a body hit the sidewalk. Jimmy, the doorman at the Statler Hotel, was momentarily stunned. Then he turned and ran into the hotel lobby. We got a jumper, he shouted. We got a jumper. Mm. So at around 2 a.m. on November 28, 1953, a 43-year-old American bacteriologist and biological warfare scientist named Whoa. Frank Olson fell from his 10th floor hotel room to the sidewalk in front of the Hotel Statler in Manhattan. The night manager, was a guy named Armand Pastore, rushed over to where Olson was like on the ground and he saw that Olson was actually still alive and quote trying to mumble something then this is a quote from a New York Times article about it It says he was broken up something awful Pastore told reporters many years later flat in his back with his legs smashed and bent at a terrible angle Mm. unfortunately Frank Olson died before medical help could arrive Mm-hmm. So the police, they went to check out Olson's room. This is from that Guardian article. It says police officers entered room 101A with guns drawn. 
They saw no one. The window was open. They pushed open the door to the bathroom and found Robert Lashbrook sitting on the toilet, head in hands. He had been sleeping, he said, and I heard, end quote, I heard a noise and then I woke up. The man that went out the window, what is his name? That's from the police. Olson came to reply, Frank Olson. Later, the police talked to like the hotel operator. And she told them that she had connected a call from that room to someone named Dr. Harold Abramson. So Abramson, well, I'll let's put a pen in Harold Abramson. I'll talk to him about him here in a little bit. Okay. Um, but the operator, she eavesdropped on the conversation, which I guess was like pretty common back then. Like rude. You, yeah. Cause like, you're doing the exchanges and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so she heard the caller who was probably Lashbrook tell the person who answered, who was probably Abramson. He says, well, he's gone. And then the person who answered said, well, that's too bad. That's the police looked in to Lashbrook's wallet and in his wallet they found the address and phone number of a magician turned CIA asset named John Mulholland. What? How the hell? Okay. Uh, I'm not going to ask any questions yet. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Lashbrook told the police that he and Olson had visited Mulholland earlier that night. The police also noticed that there were some similarities to a 1948 death of an economist and State Department employee, a guy named Lawrence Duggan, who also fell from his New York City office window after he had been accused of espionage. Okay. But... You know, after doing some uh, sort of basic investigation, they decided that Frank Olson either purposefully threw himself out of the window or maybe fell out of the window and they closed the case. And that was the end of the story. The night manager, this Armand Pastore later said, in all my years in the hotel business, I never encountered a case where someone got up in the middle of the night, ran across a dark room in his underwear, avoiding two beds and dove through a closed window with the shade and curtains drawn. So this is the story of the strange death of Frank Olson and the MK Ultra experiments conducted by the CIA. Okay. I know nothing about MK Ultra. Um, well, and I mean, at this point now I'm I'm too scared to ask. So I'm excited about this. Yeah, it's pretty fucking dark. So here are my sources. Okay. Uh, Wikipedia and then an article from The Guardian, which I quoted. It's from Mind Control to Murder, How a Dead Fall Revealed the CIA's Darkest Secrets. Mm. That's by Stephen Kinzer from The Guardian, September 6, 2019. An article from NPR, The CIA's Secret Quest for mind control torture lsd and a poisoner in chief that's by terry gross Mm -hmm. also september of 2019 a declassified cia report that i found on publicintelligence.net it's called cia's special research project bluebird You've totally been flagged for reading that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this was uh, posted on July 29, 2012, but the CIA report's actually from 1952. Okay. This, is, I believe, is a chapter in a book, but I couldn't quite figure out what it was. I found okay. it on history.sfsu.edu. It's by Marissa Witten, and the title was Perfecting the Art of Brainwashing, the CIA's Efforts to Weaponize Mind Control. Okay. An obituary from the New York Times from from 1999 at Sydney Gottlieb 80 dies took LSD to the CIA and then last another New York Times article by Michael Igniatif I think is how you pronounce it it's from April 2001 the title is what did the CIA do to his father Ooh, okay okay so let's talk about Frank Olson. Frank Rudolph Emanuel Olson was born July 17th, 1910 in Hurley, Wisconsin to Swedish immigrant parents. He went to the University of Wisconsin where he earned to be a Bachelor of Science and then eventually a PhD in bacteriology. 
1938. Okay. While he was there, he married his classmate, Alice, and they had three children together. While he was in college, he also joined the Reserve Officer Training Corps, uh, so the ROTC. Okay. Um, the, he did that to pay for school. But when the U.S. entered World War II, he was called into active duty at Fort Hood. So at Fort Hood, he served as a captain in the U.S. Army Chemical Corps. But then in December of 1942, his old mentor, a guy named Ira Baldwin, called him. He basically told Olson that he had left his position at the University of Wisconsin to run a secret program that was trying to develop biological weapons. And he wanted Olson to join him in the project as one of its very first scientists. Now, one thing about this Ira Baldwin, he was also the mentor of a chemist and future, quote, spy master, a guy named Sidney Gottlieb. And Gottlieb would eventually be the person who would head the CIA's project MK Ultra. Okay. So he's going to come back into the story. Okay. So Olson agreed and the army transferred him to the, hold on. Yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> I was making sure I was right when I said army. Yeah. Cause he had been in the U S army chemical corps. So yeah, he was in the army. Uh, they transferred him to Edgewood arsenal in Maryland, which then became, it was later renamed Fort Detrick okay. and it became the base for its top secret biologicals warfare laboratories mm. while working for that laboratory, Baldwin and Olson, you know, the, they were building up this project um, and they were teaming up with like industrialists like George W. Merck, who was the president of Merck pharmaceuticals. Okay. And through that, they established this bioweapons program in 1943. It was running concurrent to the Manhattan project, but it was <laughs> unrelated to the Manhattan project, but they were kind of happening at the same time. Okay. Now, in case you're thinking this is like some rogue fucking deep state shit. Uh, <laughs> no, it was actually like approved by Franklin Delano Roosevelt in November of 1942. Mm, okay. um, so, yeah, <laughs> we were involved with some not great stuff. Mm-hmm. And part of the not greatness of this was Operation Paperclip, which I've mentioned before on here. Yes. So many of the scientists who were working with this program were actually ex-Nazis who, uh, after the end of the war, were brought into the country through this program called Operation Paperclip. Operation Paperclip is super famous now. It's mostly famous for like having brought in people like Werner von Braun, who was ended up becoming instrumental in like NASA. Yeah. But in fact, they brought in 1,600 German scientists, engineers, and technicians. Mm-hmm. brought in over the course of about a 15-year period from 1945 to about 1959. A lot of these were just scientists who had been, like, working in Germany and, like, had to work under the Nazis, but they weren't, like, committed Nazis. Others were full-on Nazis. Some were even, like, leaders of the Nazi party. We... Um, and we were like, yoink, we want... You know, here's the thing. want your talent shame, here. Shame, shame on you for that whole Holocaust business. But we do like the way that you think. So yeah. come on over. So bring some of those big, bold ideas over to the U.S. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, they did have some justifications for doing this. And I'll leave it to you to decide whether you think these are, like, real justifications. Mm-hmm. But basically, mm-hmm. their fear were that these, these were some of the best scientists in the world had been working with or under the Nazis. Mm-hmm. And now the fear was that they were going to go into the Soviet. You know, now we're getting into the Cold War. So they're, we were afraid they were going to go to Soviet states and start working with them. Right. Or that they were going to go to 
countries like Egypt, Spain, Argentina that had sympathized with the Nazis during World War mm-hmm. II. So the idea was like, they're going to be working somewhere. We might as well have them working with the good guys. Quote right. Unquote. And let's just, uh, well, as we get into the story, we'll talk about what the good guys were up to. <laughs> Yeah. So one of one of the scientists that was working at Fort Detrick with Baldwin and Olson was a guy named Eric Traub. He had actually been the lab chief of the Nazis leading bioweapons facility, and he had worked directly under Heinrich Himmler. So okay. like full on, full on, like full deep, blown, full Nazi. blown deep in the party. Right. Great A Nazi. Exactly. So Olson was discharged from the army in 1944. He remained at Fort Detrick on a civilian contract uh, and continued his research. In 1949, he and other scientists at Fort Detrick, this is just some of the projects they were working on. Some of of the big, bold ideas they were playing. Okay. So in 1949, he and other Dietrich scientists went to Antigua, where they conducted, quote, Project Harness, which tested the vulnerability of animals to toxic clouds. So they just gassed a bunch of animals. Um, Super. In 1950, he was involved. Okay, I'm sorry. I have to say that that seems like a stupid experiment. Like, what were they thinking was going to happen? It really just seems like they were bored and they were like, do you want to go gas some animals? I mean, some of the stuff that these projects got into do have that feel of like, let's just see what happens kind of let's that just kind of arrogance yeah know? and it's like you know what's gonna happen is that they're gonna die and they're gonna die a terrible death and you don't need to know that i think their idea is they wanted to see what these specific chemicals would do and it's like can we disrupt people's like you know food chains and hostile nations what the and stuff? Fuck? but yeah, it's all I, it's all pretty it. it's all pretty <laughs> awful well it just just uh it, don't worry it gets so much better fantastic as we go like great then then they started giving puppies to orphans and (laughs) oh no wait reading the wrong story actually what they did in 1950 is they got involved with something called operation sea spray where they sprayed the serratia marcuscans bacteria from a minesweeper ship into the coastal mists of san francisco where this bacteria then reached all 800,000 of San Francisco's residents and the people living in eight surrounding cities. So they don't really know the effect that this bacteria had on people. Oh but my here's God. just a few things that happened. Um, so a bunch of people, there was a spike in people checking into the local hospitals with a rare and severe urinary tract infection. Most of the people recovered, but one of them actually died three weeks later. Ugh. From a urinary tract infection. From a urinary tract infection. Jesus. Um, I think they all checked into the same hospital, which we'll I'll get back to. And then also cases of pneumonia spiked all throughout San Francisco. Mm. Uh, no health authorities had been alerted by the army before <laughs> they just sprayed bacteria into the city's coastal mists. Doctors, after the fact, speculated that this experiment was responsible for a series of heart valve infections that popped up at the same time. Um, and then as well well as serious infections that affected like intravenous drug users up through the 60s and 70s. Weird. Um, So Senate hearings were held on the experiment. The army insisted that the infections were not caused by the bacteria. They insisted that this bacteria was not harmful. So, but I'm like, but what, then what were you doing? Why are you spraying it into the atmosphere? Yeah. They said since they all, all the urinary tract patients were in the same hospital, they said the infections happened in the hospital. Like bad practices in the hospital. Okay. Uh, The family of the man who had died actually tried to sue the army, but the case didn't go anywhere. Didn't succeed. It's unsurprising. 
Yeah. So Frank Olson, who's involved with that, he became the acting chief of the Special Operations Division at Fort Detrick in 1949. Mm -hmm. And then around this time, he started working with the CIA as well. So he was kind of working with both. And with the CIA, he was appointed to the committee for something called Project Artichoke. Project Artichoke would be the precursor for what would become Project NK Ultra. Okay. Well, let's talk about these projects. So Project Bluebird slash Project Artichoke slash Project NK Ultra. Mm. It started with Project Bluebird. It was a CIA project that focused on hypnosis and behavior modification. So the idea was to prevent CIA agents and assets from providing intelligence to enemies during interrogations. This, this is their stated goal. It's like, we want to train our agents to be able to resist like torture, basically. Okay. Okay. Sounds like a good plan, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they were part of this was prompted by fears that kind of came about after, or I should say fears that came about in Hungary, which at that point was a communist country. It was kind of mm-hmm. part of the Soviet sphere a dissident hungarian cardinal and anti-communist named joseph menzenti mm-hmm. had been put on trial in hungary because he he was like an outspoken anti-communist and was like speaking you know talking against the ruling government he denied being part of any like active anti-government conspiracy but of course did they just say oh my bad my bad you're free to go No. Right. They beat him with rubber truncheons and then otherwise tortured him until he agreed to confess to all manner of things. Everything Mm. from stealing the crown of St. Stephen. Because I think they were saying he was trying to like steal this crown to then like appoint a monarch. Um, Okay. Also scheming to overthrow the Communist Party of Hungary and even planning a third world war. He confessed all of it. And Mm. like, obviously he didn't do really any of this right getting beaten with rubber truncheons so this spooked the cia and they said okay we're going to start this project bluebird because we want to address some specific problems so let's just go through what some of these specific problems were and see if they let's see if they stayed on task with like (laughs) let's train our agents just to resist interrogations right so here's some of the questions they're asking this is from that declassified report okay this is an actual cia report Um, So, you know, FBI enters the chat or whatever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, So, quote, can we condition by post H suggestion, which I believe means post hypnotic suggestion, Mm -hmm. agency employees or persons of interest to this agency to prevent them from giving information to any unauthorized source or for committing any act on behalf of a foreign or domestic enemy? Seems fair. Like Mm -hmm. we want our agents, assets, soldiers, whatever, to be able to protect themselves. Sounds great. Can we, in a matter of an hour, two hours, one day, et cetera, induce an H condition, hypnotic condition, in an unwilling subject to such an extent that he will perform on net for our benefit? Okay. Okay. Can we create by post H control an action contrary to an individual's basic moral principles? So this seems like we're getting beyond like training our agents to resist interrogations, right? Right. This is this is now getting into can we make them do what we want them to do regardless of whether or not they right. believe in it. Could we seize a subject and in the space of an hour or two by post H control have him crash an airplane, wreck a train, etc. Okay, so can we make terrorists? Yeah. Can we by SI, which means special interrogation and H techniques? Force a subject unwillingly or otherwise to travel long distances, commit specified acts, and return to us or bring documents or materials. 
Can a person acting under post-age control successfully travel long distances? Can we, quote, alter a person's personality? Okay, so can we create winter soldiers? Yes. I mean, basically, yeah. In modern parlance, a winter soldier. (laughs) In, like, classic film parlance, if anyone's seen the, like, the movie Manchurian Candidate. Can we make Manchurian Candidates? Right. Can we guarantee total amnesia under any and all conditions? Can we get control of an individual to the point where he will do our bidding against his will and even against fundamental laws of nature, such as self-preservation? Okay, so really, can we create winter soldiers? Can we create a winter soldier? Yeah, exactly. This is what they're trying to do. And this is like 1949, Uh, 1950. Oh my God, okay. So I couldn't find the exact dates of when Project Bluebird started, but I think it's like the late 40s, early 50s. Okay. Well, Project Artichoke rose out of Project Bluebird. And this is what Frank Olson joined initially, was Project Artichoke. It was created on August 20th, 1951, and it was run by the CIA's Office of Scientific Intelligence. It worked together with the intelligence divisions of like the Army, Navy, Air Force, and the FBI. So again, we're not talking like hidden rogue shit, you know? Right. This is like everyone's involved. Right. Some we're not talking some wackadoos who are meeting like in the back of a storage closet. Right. Exactly. So essentially the goal of Project Artichoke was to determine whether a person could be involuntarily turned into an assassin. So okay. a winter soldier. Manchurian a winter soldier. Um, <sighs> the project studied effects of hypnosis, forced morphine addiction, and the use of substances like LSD to produce amnesia in vulnerable subjects. I'm not gonna get into it. Like this. I think I told you in text message before we started, this is definitely one of those way too much information stories. And like, Mm -hmm. I could have gone down the rabbit holes on this for weeks. Yep. So one thing I'm not going to do is talk about like the creation of LSD, um, but that's like very much its own fascinating story. Okay. The project also carried out in-house and overseas experiments using LSD, hypnosis, total isolation, and various forms of, quote, physiological harassment for interrogations on subjects. Okay. Scientists and agents would use cocaine, marijuana, heroin, peyote, and mescaline. But LSD quickly became the most, quote, promising drug. Okay. Uh, So the test subjects were left fogged with amnesia and had only, like, fragmented, distorted memories of whatever they had gone through. By 1952, they moved on where they started unknowingly dosing their actual, their own CIA agents. They were giving people doses of LSD, their own agents, because the scientists wanted to study the effects on unsuspecting people. So one CIA agent was actually kept on LSD for 77 days. So they're just like slipping it into their coffee and stuff. 77 days. Yeah. So that was Project Artichoke. Project MKUltra then grew out of Project Artichoke. So it was ordered by CIA Director Alan Dulles on April 13th, 1953. And then he selected Sidney Gottlieb to run the project. So if you remember, Sidney Gottlieb and Frank Olson shared the same mentor, this Ira Baldwin. Right. So like Project Bluebird and Project Artichoke, the goal was to develop mind-controlling drugs to be used against the rising Soviet bloc. It was also supposedly in response to efforts that were being conducted in the Soviet Union, North Korea, and China on American POWs during the Korean War. So this is ba- the basis for the Manchurian candidate. Okay. Um, Sorry. Finish. <laughs> She was sleeping 
peacefully on the couch and then got up and was like, well, I've been asleep for too long. So now she's doing the rounds in the house, checking everything out. All right. Making sure. Are we safe? We're safe. Yeah. She just huffed at me. Okay. (laughs) I guess that means you're safe. Yeah. No winter soldiers in your house. No winter soldiers in my house. (laughs) No, no way. Okay, so so this, like I said, this is the basis for the the Manchurian Candidate. And by the way, if you guys, I've never read the novel that the Manchurian Candidate is based on, mm-hmm. and they did do a remake in like 2006, which is actually not bad. Um, who's in that? Who's in the remake? Leave Schreiber, Mal Streep, and Denzel Washington. Who's in the original? R- R- Frank okay. Sinatra. Um, <laughs> what's his fucking name? The guy who plays Raymond. I'm forgetting his name. Uh, like the main character. Um. Uh, Dustin Hoffman? No. Wait, who did you say? Oh, the guy who plays Raymond? I thought you said the guy who plays Rain Man. And no. I was like, what? Sorry. No, no, the character <laughs> Raymond, who's who's <laughs> the main, who's the main character of or one of the main characters of the Manchurian uh, Canada. I'm forgetting his name. Um, and then also Angela Lansbury and like the most unmurder she wrote Angela Lansbury role you could imagine. Like Fantastic. she is so fucking scary in the Manchurian Candidate. But it's it's a great it's a great film. But it's very much about how the North Koreans and the Chinese and the Soviets were conducting these evil experiments on American POWs to turn them into assassins and Manchurian candidates. Meanwhile, we're literally doing the same fucking thing yikes okay um so author stephen kinzer who wrote the guardian article that i'm quoting he also wrote a book which i didn't have time to read but he argued that these mk ultra techniques that they were playing with were actually continuations of the experiments that had been conducted by like the japanese during world war ii and specifically by the nazis and its concentration camps mm. which would make sense considering all the nazis we had working for us because mm-hmm. of Operation Paperclip. Like, for instance, the mescaline experiments had already been conducted at Dachau. And then now wow. the CIA is conducting similar experiments. Wow. Okay, so among their goals, like, they wanted to come up with a plan to either drug or poison Fidel Castro. <laughs> you know. No, no. <laughs> Refrain from commenting there. Yeah. They wanted to produce a, quote, perfect truth drug for interrogating Soviet spies. Okay. They also conducted something called Subproject 54 with the Navy, which attempted to use subaural frequency blasts to erase the memory of test subjects. So basically blasting sound at you to erase your memory. This starts feeling very like Philadelphia experiment kind of stuff. Yeah. And unsurprisingly, that actual experiment was never conducted. I think at some point someone was like, hey, guys, you know what? This might actually be bullshit. Like this might actually not work (laughs) it feels like they had a computer generator program that was just like we're going to see if blank can make blank blank yeah and it's like we're going to see if candy corn can make cows telekinetic like yeah yeah no it's very much that kind of and it's like the stuff like this is the kind of thing I think people want to think of as being like, oh, conspiracy theory, you know, and it's like it gets used in sci-fi story, you know, it's like lost sort of touches on this kind of stuff. I mean, obviously the winter soldier touches on this kind of stuff, mentoring right. candidate. But like this isn't a conspiracy theory. Like this shit's documented. This shit happened. right. Like there were right. Senate hearings and a presidential commission, which I'll talk about in a little bit to investigate this. Like this, this happened. Um, it's not clear how successful any of this stuff was, but these were the goals. So let's talk about some of the like mad libs of ideas that they were playing with. Right. 
So like one thing they did, they administered, they, they started off, they were like, who can we do this stuff to who really can't say anything back? How about mental patients? For instance, in Kentucky, they administered LSD to a mental patient for 174 days (sighs) in, in a Kentucky like institution. Mm-hmm. They were also, like I said, administering LSD to their own agents, but they were also like administering it to drug addicts, sex workers, college students, all of these people without quote informed consent. Like these people were not being told what was happening to them. Mm-hmm. This is like most things in my life. This ties back to Stephen King. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Um, if anyone's ever read Firestarter or seen the movie, The Shop. The, the mysterious evil government agency that essentially creates Charlie McGee, the fire starter, mm-hmm. is modeled off of MKUltra. Okay. So from the, from the Sydney Gottlieb obituary, they quote one agency officer saying, you know, these were all people who could not fight back. All of this was, by the way, a violation of the Nuremberg Code that the U.S. had agreed to at the end of World War II because of shit like what was going on in the concentration camps. Yes, You know, um, so this is from the Nuremberg Codes. Uh, It says the voluntary consent of the human subject is absolutely essential. This means that the person involved should have legal capacity to give consent, should be so situated as to be able to exercise free power of choice without the intervention of any element of force, fraud, deceit, duress, overreaching, or other ulterior form of constraint or coercion, and should have sufficient knowledge and comprehension of the elements of the subject matter involved as to enable him to make an understanding and enlightened decision. Yep. Sounds fair. So this is what uh, they did at MKUltra. Uh, One of their operations was called Operation Midnight Climax, where CIA, CIA agents went back to San Francisco like they're like, okay, we just gave you all these urinary tract infections. Yeah. Now what we're going to do is we're going to set up a bunch of fake brothels within like safe houses within San Francisco. Mm. And we're going to have quote prostitutes mm-hmm. or sex workers coerce men into coming back to these quote brothels, which are actually CIA safe houses, uh-huh. which are of course equipped with one-way mirrors okay, with cameras behind them and a bunch of scientists with fucking clipboards watching. Creepy. Uh, the men would have sex with the sex workers workers slash Uh cia assets who would then (laughs) who would then dose them with lsd okay and then start asking them leading quote post-coital questions to see if they could coerce these men into involuntarily revealing secrets so yeah totally within the spirit of the Nuremberg code right yeah (laughs) i just am trying to think of like the I'm assuming that the sex workers were women. Mm-hmm. Maybe they weren't, but I'm assuming that they were. And I'm trying to think that they're like, you know, Agent Paul, please come in here. We'd like to talk to you about what we'd like you to do for your next assignment. And she's like, you want me to fuck dudes and dose them with LSD? And they were like, do it for your country. Yeah. Patriotism. And like, yeah, right. Go America. Yeah. And she's like, I can't like. Do I have to have sex with them though? Can I not just dose them and then can, and can we like, like mind control them into thinking we've had sex? And the answer was no, you have to have sex with them because, in part, <sighs> among what the CIA was trying to do was see, like, develop illegal techniques for interrogation, including sexual blackmail. They what? wanted to see how effective sexual blackmail would be. <sighs> um, they were also wanted to see how suggestible these men would be. So they would also give them subliminal messages to attempt to induce them to commit crimes like robbery, assault, and even assassination. 
So here's a dude just trying to get his rocks off, get a little strange on the side. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, we're going to try and turn you into a mentoring candidate. Welcome to San Francisco. (laughs) We're going to try to turn you into a fucking winter soldier. Yeah. 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 So these are like some of the stories. Now, when all this kind of became like very public, people really focused in on this. Oh my God, they're trying to create Manchurian candidates. They're trying, you know. But a historian named Alfred W. McCoy said that actually the CIA sort of encouraged all those claims in the media because they were trying to deflect attention away from what their real goal was, which was essentially to devise effective methods of interrogation, like torture, (sighs) drugging. Right. Systems, probably waterboarding. Like, right. Yeah. So that's just, that's like, like that's literally scratching the surface of what MK Ultra was doing. Like, yeah. I, like I said, I could have gone on. This could be an 18 hour episode of just me listing MK Ultra bullshit Jesus. projects. Okay. But let's get back to our buddy Frankels. Okay. So, Olson's kids, particularly his son, Eric, have said that the work he was doing at both Fort Dietrich and for the CIA started really affecting his mental state. Mm -hmm. So like, among other things, he had to watch and help the poisoning, gassing and torture of laboratory animals. And I guess he was an animal lover. So this is what his son, Eric, had to say. He said he'd come to work in the morning and see piles of dead monkeys. That messes with you. He wasn't the right guy for that. And I apologize. Um. It's probably again way too late, but content warning people. I'm gonna put, it at, <laughs> put it at the beginning of the <laughs> yeah, we just need to do like a general yeah, awfulness content warning for the entire episode. It'll prominently be in the show notes. Yeah. He also witnessed a bunch of torture sessions in international CIA safe houses where people were quote literally interrogated to death in experimental methods combining drugs, hypnosis, and torture to attempt to master brainwashing techniques and memory erasing. I think that quote also comes from his son, Eric, but I'm not sure. It does come from the the Kinzer book that I didn't have time to read. It's called Poisoner in Chief, Sidney Gottlieb and the CIA Search for Mind Control. And I definitely want to read that book. So here's basically the story of that. So at this point, I think Olson, he had been involved in some like bad stuff. Like he had been involved in this like release of bacteria through San Francisco and things Mm -hmm. like that. But he had not actually been involved in like these human interrogation trials. Like this was going on kind of separate from him. But then in 1953, the Americans and the North Koreans signed the Korean Armistice Agreement, at which point a bunch of Korean War POWs were repatriated to the U.S., But 21 of the POWs refused to come back and actually defected to North Korea. Mm. And then the returning POWs were seen as a security risk because it wasn't clear how deeply or effectively they'd been like subjected to North Korean mind control experiments on their own. Right. So these POWs were treated suspiciously and were actually, quote, debriefed. But these were essentially hostile interrogations. They were conducted at all these like different sites. So it seems like Olson may have participated or observed some of these debriefings because on the day of the armistice signing, he traveled to Paris, Stockholm, London, and then to Berlin. And while he was there, he told his friend, a guy named William Sargent, who was a psychiatrist who worked for British intelligence and British intelligence, they were working on their own kind of version of MK ultra. Mm -hmm. And this William Sargent was involved with that. Olson told him that he had visited a joint American British installation near Frankfurt, Germany, and basically had watched some of these interrogations. 
Now, it wasn't just, it's not clear if these were the Korean POWs who were being interrogated. A British journalist named Gordon Thomas, who also knew this William Sargent, uh, he said he believed that the CIA was actually testing their interrogation and truth serums on captured Russian agents and ex-Nazis, or quote-unquote expendables. But either way, human subjects. Right. And this was the first time Frank Olson had actually, like, he kind of knew this stuff was going on, I think, but this is the first time he actually saw it and really realized the extent of it. Yeah. So when he returned from this overseas trip, his family said that his mood had changed. Like, his wife was telling friends that he was, quote, unusually withdrawn. Mm. But after Olson had confided to this William Sargent, this British psychiatrist, about what he had seen there, this William Sargent turned around and immediately reported that Frank had become a security threat. And he recommended that his access to military facilities be limited. So it seems pretty clear that Frank was getting disillusioned with what he was doing. Mm -hmm. So here's a quote from one of the New York Times articles. I don't remember which one. It says, Olson, a scientist by training, would have known that he was working for a government that had put Nazi scientists on trial at Nuremberg for immoral experiments on human beings. Now, in the late summer of 1953, his son says he believes a naive American patriot faced up to the possibility that his own government was doing the same thing. If the CIA was in fact experimenting with, quote, expendables in Germany, and if Olson knew about it, Eric, his son, reasoned, then it would not be enough to hospitalize him, discredit him with lies about his mental condition, and allow him to slip back into civilian life. It would be better to get rid of him altogether, but make it look like suicide. Oh, man. So yeah, I mean, that tracks. <laughs> yeah. Now, no one really knows, and I'll get to that exactly what happened but let's get to like kind of the the week before his death okay so from november 18th to 20th uh or i think 18th to 23rd 1953 frank olson attended this like semi-monthly retreat for like the close mk ultra scientists okay it was like people from like the cia people from the army it was like the top people i think there were 12 people at this retreat and it sounds like they did this retreat fairly frequently where they would all get together and compare notes and kind of talk about what they were doing. It was at a secluded cabin at Deep Creek Leak. God damn it. It was <laughs> <laughs> it was at a secluded cabin at Deep Creek Lake in Maryland. Among those who attended were Olson, uh, also his supervisor, who's a guy named Lieutenant Colonel Vincent Ruitt. Uh, he was uh, worked at Fort Detrick. The Sydney Gottlieb was there. And mm. then uh, Gottlieb's deputy, a guy named Robert Lashbrook. Okay. Now, if you remember, Robert Lashbrook was the guy who was sharing the hotel room with mm-hmm. Frank Olson when he mm-hmm. went out the window. Okay, so this quote is from the Guardian article. It says, the first 24 hours of the retreat were uneventful. On Thursday evening, the group gathered for dinner and then settled back for a round of drinks. Lashbrook, Gottlieb's deputy, produced a bottle of Cointreau, probably not pronouncing that right, and poured glasses for the company. Several, including Olson, drank heartily. After 20 minutes, Gottlieb asked if anyone was feeling odd. Several said that they were. Gottlieb then told them that their drinks had been spiked with LSD. This is the thing. If we're dealing with people that are like, what happens if we unknowingly dose people with shit? I sure as fuck wouldn't eat or drink anything around them. No, because clearly they're treating it like a fucking game. Like you can just see this escalation of like, at this point, they just feel like they're operating clearly outside of codes of ethics. Right. 
and it's so they're top just secret. Like, so they feel like they're shield, and then now they're just like, what if we do it? And it really is like a Mad Libs thing, right? Just like, what if I dose this baby? What if I, yeah, <laughs> and what if I my dose, grandma? What if I dose my top it, scientists? What like, if I put it in the tip of my penis? Like, it's I'm so 100 somebody did that. Like, somebody did that, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then it was like, woo, like, just yeah. spun off like a top. <laughs> Yeah, so the news that they had been dosed by LSD was, quote, not well received. You think? Yeah. And Olsen in particular was very upset by this. So again, from the Guardian article, it says, according to his son, Eric, he became, quote, quite agitated and was having a serious confusion with separating reality from fantasy. Soon, though, he and the others were carried away into a hallucinatory world. Gottlieb later reported that they were boisterous and laughing, unable to continue the meeting or engage in sensible conversations. The next morning, they were in only slightly better shape. The meeting broke up. Olson headed back to Maryland, and by the time he arrived, he was a changed man. Uh, So he went to work the next morning on November 23rd. His boss, this Lieutenant Colonel Vincent Ruick, came in later. They were both in, like, bad shape from this experience. Yeah. Olson basically just unloaded on Ruick. Um, not like blaming him, but like basically just like, I don't know what to do. And he said he was like threatening to quit, asking if he should quit. And then at one point was asking Ruit to fire him. Mm. Uh, Ruit calmed him down and basically convinced him like, Hey, like, don't act rash. Let's just it's think this just through. a little LSD, just a little LSD. Yeah. Relax. But this again was like pumping up these fears that right. he was becoming a security threat. Right. Because now he's actually threatening to quit. Right. But he's and he's acting erratically. He's behaving not rationally. So who knows what he could do? And the thing is, Frank Olson knew all of the secrets. He knew everything that had been going on at Fort Detrick since mm. 1943, like their oh. biological warfare experiments. Mm-hmm. He knew everything about MK Ultra. There, there were actual rumors that I think have never been confirmed that the U.S. was using biological weapons during the Korean War. This, mm. of course, would have been a war crime. Right. And if it's true, it's something that Olson for sure would have known. Right. So he's starting to freak people out. Five days after the dosing, he was still in bad shape. Ruet called up Sidney Gottlieb and told him, like, hey, uh, we need to do something about Frank. And so Gottlieb's like, uh, why don't you bring him in for a chat? And Gottlieb later said that Olsen seemed, quote, confused in certain areas of his thinking. Mm-hmm. Gottlieb made the decision. He says, I'm going to have you take Frank Olsen up to New York City to meet with and be evaluated by this guy named Harold Abramson. Now, if you remember, Harold Abramson is the guy that Lashbrook called from the hotel room and said he went out the window. Right. So here's what Harold Abramson was doing. He was like a, he was not a psychiatrist, but he was like a physician. I mean, he was like a very respected doctor in the New York City area, but he was also clandestinely working with MKUltra and with the CIA and was considered sort of secretly an expert on LSD. Um, They chose him to talk to Olson because he had sort of the same level of security clearance as Olson. And this would allow Olson to talk freely about what he was going through. Okay. Okay. But you got to keep in mind that Abramson was, he was like an MK ultra loyalist. So he wasn't necessarily there for Frank Olson's benefit. He was there to figure out how big of a risk and a threat 
he really was. And also, right. it sounds like he was even kind of conducting his own little experiment on Olsen to like sort of see what was going on in his mind, how the LSD was affecting him. Oh know? my gosh. So Olsen talked to him, told him what was going on. He said he'd been unable to work since the retreat. He couldn't concentrate, seemed to have forgotten how to spell. Oh. Abramson reassured him that the effects were temporary and that kind of seemed to calm Olsen down a little bit. Um, he had planned to return to his family for Thanksgiving dinner. And so he and Lashbrook and Ruett flew back to Maryland. But then when they landed, this quote, where was this quote from? This is from the Guardian article. It says, an MK Ultra colleague was waiting when they landed. Ruett and Olsen got into his car for the drive to Frederick, which is where Fort Dietrich was. Mm-hmm. Soon after they set off, Olsen's mood changed. He asked that the car be stopped. Olsen turned to Ruet and announced that he felt, quote, ashamed to meet his wife and family because he was, quote, so mixed up. What do you want me to do? Ruet asked. Just let me go. Let me go off by myself. I can't do that. Well, then just turn me over to the police. They're looking for me anyway, which is like they weren't. They weren't like he's clearly in some sort of delusional mm. state like he's paranoid he's just cycling through this almost like a psychotic break which oh. sure seems like it's brought on by the lsd yeah so Ruet said hey why don't we go back to new york and you talk to abramson and olson's like yeah that's a good idea why don't we go back up there so they actually took a taxi from maryland to abramson's weekend home on long island Jesus. Where Abramson spent about an hour with Olsen and then followed by another 20 minutes with Lashbrook. The next morning, uh, the three of them went back to Manhattan for another session at Abramson's office. Abramson talked to Olsen and basically convinced him to like confine himself to a mental asylum temporarily. There was a mental institution down in Maryland. He said, why don't you go in for a stay and just kind of get right, you know? Right. And Olsen agreed. And after that, he and Lashbrook went over to where they had checked into their room at the Hotel Statler. Okay. Lashbrook and Olsen had dinner that night. Olsen told Lashbrook that he was actually looking forward to staying, to his stay in the hospital. He said he was like talking about all the books he was planning to read while he was in there. Mm. And Lashbrook said it was like, it was almost like the old Olsen was back. So they went to their room that night. Olsen washed his socks in the sink. They went to bed. Okay. 2.25 a.m. Frank Olsen went out the window. Okay. So what happened to Frank Olson? Nobody really knows. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> the, the official line is that he killed himself. Okay. Or that it was accidental, that he, he was in some sort of state caused right. by the LSD and it was, a, it was a suicide. But there are definitely people who think that it was murder. Okay. Yeah, um, that makes sense. To, to essentially like stop him from talking. Right. Because he clearly was, he was like off, he was like off the plot at this point. Right. They didn't feel like they could control him anymore. And he just knew so much. He had so much dirt. Mm-hmm. So his family and friends were told that he had either fallen or jumped from the window after having a quote, fatal nervous breakdown. <sighs> but they weren't really given any details about what happened. And they weren't told about the LSD or anything. Okay. They were just like, he, he snapped. He went out the window. In 1975, so 22 years later, Mm -hmm. there was a New York Times report that alleged that the CIA had been conducting illegal domestic activities, including experiments on U.S. citizens. So President Ford, Gerald Ford, 
He set up the United States President's Commission on CIA Activities within the United States. It was chaired by the Vice President, Nelson Rockefeller, and became known as the Rockefeller Commission. And this is where all the MKUltra stuff, I don't think it all came out, but like it was confirmed to exist. Okay. Like this is where it, it all went public. Okay. And you got to keep in mind, like, the time period, this is right after Watergate. Yeah. (laughs) So people want to talk about, like, why were Americans so, like, in the 70s, just so cynical? (laughs) Well, why do you, why do you fucking think? Yeah, (laughs) because they were finding out their government was, was essentially the mafia. Yeah, our government was the mafia slash mad scientists, and we had just lost a, a major unnecessary war. Right. Where a bunch of people died who didn't need to die. Like, yeah, people were, you know, and like, not not to editorialize too much, but I read stories like this and people talk about like, oh, things have like, you know, 2021, things have never been worse in this country. And everyone points out, well, the Civil War was pretty bad. Okay, well, maybe the Civil War was worse. But other than that, nothing has ever been worse in terms of just this country and the disillusionment and, you know, the cynicism towards government and, you know, the polarization, all that's never been worse than it has been before. And I'm like, the 70s were pretty fucking bad. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're coming off of a decade of upheaval, assassinations. Yeah. And then this shit starts coming out. (laughs) Yes. And like, I could do a whole episode on the Rockefeller Commission and just really get into, like I said, this is just scratching the surface of MKUltra. Right. But during these hearings, it came out and the CIA admitted that yes, Frank Olson had been dosed with LSD nine days before his death. So after that admission, his family announced plans to sue the CIA for wrongful death. Okay. Um, the government offered them an out-of-court settlement of $1.25 million. It later got reduced to $750,000, but by today's standards, it's like more than $3 million. Still not enough, I don't think. Mm, yeah. They also received formal apologies from President Ford and then CIA Director William Colby. So what happened to Project MK Ultra? Yeah, what did happen to it? Well, it officially lasted from 1953 to about 1964. When there was like a final report issued and they were like, you know, but a lot of people don't really believe that. Yeah, Yeah, a lot of people don't believe that. In 1973, all the records from MKUltra were ordered just to be destroyed. So there's actually, there's a lot of testimony and a lot of like witness accounts and stuff, but a lot of the records are gone. Okay. A lot of people don't think it ever ended. People think it's still going on under different mm-hmm. names, different offshoots, different experiments, right? Different, you know, biological applications, psychological applications. I mean, obviously, the idea of like enhanced interrogation, like that came up in the mid 2000s. Yep. These were all techniques devised through things like MKUltra, yeah. know, waterboarding, sleep deprivation, all this all was a result of MKUltra. Not just in Ultra, like I said, the British were doing things, the Soviets were doing things, the right. Chinese. But just, you know, this, the middle part of the last century was just when we were like, let's see how we can fuck with the human brain. Yeah. And, you know, whatever happened, what, what exactly happened to Frank Olson? Was it a suicide? Was it an accident? Was he murdered? Who fucking knows? <sighs> and that is the story of the strange death of Frank Olson and the much, much stranger history of 
Project MK Ultra. Jeez Louise. Yeah, I see what I mean. Like it's yeah. not actually not enraging. <laughs> like my initial idea was like, oh, I should do something a little bit lighter to go along with your story. And it kind of didn't right. work out like that. <laughs> <laughs> and then you got into it and you're like, oh, this is also Oh no, this terrible. isn't this isn't like fun sci-fi, like lost kind of no, this this is like awful. <laughs> this is awful before we move on i I do want to mention real quick one last thing yes Uh, just if anyone is interested in this story uh, one thing i just i hadn't heard of this before but apparently there is a series about frankelson i think it's on netflix i think it's called wormwood oh interesting and it stars like peter sarsgaard i believe as frankelson and it's done by errol morris who's mostly known as a documentarian he did like the fog of war and things like that very well respected documentarian and my understanding is that it's like half docuseries with like very like high production value reenactments Oh, cool. Um, I think it's six episodes. So I'm going to definitely check it out. I wanted to watch it before I did my story, but I just ran out of time. So Okay, cool. We'll have a watch list for yeah. uh, for this series because I also have a recommendation as well. Cool. All right. Um, so uh, if you were not living under a rock, you know that earlier last week, which actually be the week before this episode is coming yeah. out, that the Supreme Court... Uh, the majority of the Supreme Court essentially sat on their laurels and allowed a pretty disgusting uh, law go into effect, right? Like that is what it, it actually is in Texas. Yeah, I believe it is officially in effect now. Yeah. Yes. It, it essentially, I think, prohibits terminating a pregnancy after six weeks, which people usually don't even know they're pregnant. six weeks. Um, Also, in case you don't know this, uh, the way that you sort of calculate a a pregnancy date is not actually from the day that you became pregnant. It is from the first day of your last period, Yeah, which is uh, dumb. I'm I'm sorry. It's dumb. Um, (laughs) Right. So there's that. This is, you know, a pretty devastating news. If you are a person with a uterus, a person who is capable of, of getting pregnant, but uh, of course, nowhere near the first time that childbearing people have had their rights uh, sort of thrown out the window. Yeah. So that's what brings us to our story today. I, of course, I'm going to start with a cold open. I don't know if you can hear Donia drinking water, yeah. but if you can, please disregard. <laughs> <laughs> and here we go. Okay. So our story starts with a woman named Melvina Hernandez. Um, her and her husband, they're living in East LA. It's early, like, 1970s and her and her husband dreamt of having like at least two or three children that's actually a pretty small family by like latino or mexican standards Uh um but that's like that's what they wanted they were like we'd feel really good with like a family of, of of two or three kids yeah um at age 23 Melvina was ready to welcome her first baby into the world. And so she went into labor. And when she went into labor, she went to the LA County USC Medical Center in Boyle Heights, Los Angeles. Right. Melvina had come to the US from Mexico and she didn't speak a lot of English. Her husband was not allowed to be like in, in, I'm going to say the delivery room in, in very big quotes, but yeah. he wasn't allowed to be with her, which was not really, uh, that was, that was pretty normal for, yeah. for back then. So she's in labor. She gets to the late stages of labor, which is like the, anybody who hasn't had kids, which is myself included the moms that I've talked to. That's like when it's really like you're pushing right. you're in like active labor. 
So she gets to the late stages of her labor and the doctor tells Melvina that her husband, that I'm sorry, that her baby is breech. So it's turned around and that she needs to decide whether or not she wants to save her life or the life of her unborn child. Yeah. Melvina says, save the baby's life. And the doctor says, you know what? I can save you both. And he calls a nurse over. The nurse tells Melvina that she needs to sign a piece of paper. Whatever is written on this paper is written in English, which again, uh, Melvina okay. cannot read. And Melvina says that she can't, she can't sign this paper. Her husband's not here. She like, she can't, she can't sign this paper. The nurse tells her that if she doesn't sign the paper, she won't get the surgery. And if she won't get the surgery, she will die. She then grabs Melvina's hand and like forces her to sign the paper. Melvina Hernandez would not discover that that day she had been sterilized by permanent tubal ligation until four years later. Today, I'm going to tell you the tragic story of the Madrigal 10. Mm, okay. Sources for this are Wikipedia, lots and lots and lots of articles on Wikipedia. Yeah. <laughs> um, the New York Times, when doctors took family planning into their own hands by Marcela Valdez. The Library of Congress, 1978, Madrigal versus Killigan, a Latinx resource guide. The National Institute of Health, sterilized in the name of public health by Alexandra Minna Stern. Mm. She has written a lot. She's written a lot, not only just about, I think, she's written about the Madrigal 10. She's also written a lot about eugenics in the United States. Uh, So if you're interested in that topic, check her out. The 215 documentary film Nomas Bebes by Renee Tajima Peña, who I believe is an Oscar winner. She did Who Killed Vincent Chen. Oh, okay. I've heard of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is my film suggestion for the week. Smithsonian Magazine, the book that incited a worldwide fear of overpopulation by Charles C. Mann. PBS Independent Lens, Renee Tahima Pena on the woman of the Madrigal versus Killigan case by Craig Phillips. USA Today, thousands of Latinos were sterilized in the 20th century amid COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy, they remember, by mm-hmm. Nada Hassanin. And an episode of The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, which <laughs> yeah. will become clear in a moment. Oh, and uh, We Are Me Too for Rosa unravels the Madrigal 10s fight for reproductive justice after forced sterilizations in California. A lot of research for this one, a lot of resources. Okay, so before we go further, uh, I want to give you, you all, you, you, Scotty, and our listeners, mm-hmm. a little bit of backstory on the LA County USC Med Center, which will now be referred to as either the Med Center or the hospital, because I can't say that whole thing every single time. I'm also going to talk a little bit, a little, little, little bit about US sterilization laws, eugenics, and that's it. I was going to add something else, but decided not to, because like Scotty said, mine is also a topic that was like could spin off. Uh, what I was going to yeah. talk about a little bit was a very brief history of modern gynecology, but that's a topic for another time. Okay. <laughs> okay. So LAC USC was a public teaching hospital owned by LA County and it was operated by the LA County Department of Health Services. The doctors were faculty of the Keck School of Medicine of USC. It opened in 1878, though the location that we'll be talking about was located at 2051 Marengo Street in Boyle Heights, Los Angeles. It was a 600 bed hospital. The Med Center has a huge reputation, not just in LA, but I think like throughout the country, definitely and possibly throughout the world. Marilyn Monroe was born in the charity ward. 
Mm, of okay. LACUSC, uh, Stan Getz, who was, I think, a jazz saxophonist. I think um, so, yeah. Yeah, he was processed in the jail ward while his wife was giving <laughs> birth on the floor below. Okay. Um, the exterior was used in the opening credits of General Hospital starting in 1975. It's appeared in dozens of movies and TV shows. It's a level one trauma center. It provides care for half of all sickle, sickle cell anemia patients and people living with AIDS in Southern California, and it provides healthcare for the regions medically underserved. It is an institution with a capital I. As we've talked about in other episodes, California doesn't have the like most progressive attitudes towards anybody who didn't fit into like the WASP category. Um, and also just a reminder that Nazis uh, did not invent eugenics. They were actually inspired by California's eugenic practices. Yeah. So there we go. Okay. So the U.S. was the first country to actually adopt sterilization laws, which of course targeted anybody that was deemed undesirable. That meant anybody and everybody from like criminals to institutionalized people, to poor folks, to people of color, to immigrants, to people who were like physically or mentally ill, you get the idea. Right. So in 1909, California passed a eugenics law that allowed state institutions to sterilize people that they deemed, quote, unfit or feeble-minded. Okay. Yeah. Just just that term, feeble-minded. Yeah. I saw in... (laughs) I saw, like, pictures of records of like a girl who got called in for truancy and they decided to sterilize her because Jesus. she was like, I think it said something like it feeble minded was on there. I think it was sexually reckless. Um, you know, they were like, her mother is an alcoholic and is insane. Her father is a drug addict. Like they basically were like, here's this girl's background. And this is why we need to sterilize her. This is before my story even happened. This was like four and 50s. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so California becomes the third state to pass a compulsory, meaning forced or coerced sterilization law, which basically is like, you know, if some dude thinks that somebody needs to be sterilized, they can be sterilized. Yeah. Uh, it was happening to men and women. By 1921, California accounted for 80% of the sterilizations in the U.S. Wow. And at least 20,000 people were sterilized between 1909 and 1979. And most people consider that that number, 20,000, is a lowball estimate. 1979. Mm-hmm. 1909 so, to 1979. Wow. I mean, that's just, it's just insane. Like, that's two years after I was born. Like, mm-hmm. This is an yeah. ancient history. Not at all. Somewhere along the way from 1909 to 1979, the eugenicists sort of like, I'm, I'm using heavy, again, I'm going to be using a lot of heavy air quotes. Yeah. Uh, so I hope you all can hear it in my voice. But eugenicists sort of like, evolve their message uh, from like distaste to the sort of like righteous idea. They start to believe they have to stop these people from breeding like rabbits, not because they're icky, but because their misfit children will spiral the planet into a worldwide famine. Yeah. Okay. So so then we're getting into like overpopulation. Yes. All that stuff. Ding, ding, ding. 100%. And this is actually where Paul Ehrlich's best-selling book, The Population Bomb, Mm -hmm. Population Bomb, comes into the story. And this is a book that basically said that the world was created 
careening towards global famine because right. our resources couldn't keep up with the population. Ehrlich is not completely without a point. <laughs> yeah. I, like, mean, I think there are some valid concerns. Yeah, he's not wrong. He talked about how the world had millions of undernourished children with finite resources that were taking a toll on the environment. The Johnny Tonight Show with Johnny Carson clip that I mentioned earlier is an interview with him. And he, at, at the time that he was talking, world's population was, I think, either approaching or just at 4 billion. We are now at nearly 8 billion yeah. uh, world population. And he was basically saying, he was like, we need to see if we can take really good care of the 4 billion people that we have before we get to 5 billion. And we need yeah. to ask ourselves, how will the world be better if we have 5 billion people versus 4 billion people? Right. So he's, he's not wrong, but his solution is a very downstream solution. You know, he, yeah. he doesn't talk about like wealth and resource hoarding. He doesn't talk right. about finding renewable energy and sustainable food sources and any of that stuff. He's, he's just, just like, he's just stop looking, having babies. Yeah. He's looking at the top line number, like too 100%. many people. Yeah. yeah. Too many, too many people. Yeah. Um, this is also, you know, not, not too long before this LBJ had said that the greatest threat to humanity was the race between population and food supply. Mm-hmm. And Nixon actually, sets up a commission to research population control and that's led by john d rockefeller the third which just means like huge amounts of money going towards researching population control yeah and well yeah. i mean just like it's interesting that you got a rockefeller in my story and a rockefeller in your story oh yeah and it's like yeah so we've got all these problems let's trust the the super uber billionaire yes. to the rockefeller fortunes to solve this for to us. solve this yeah. yeah while my story primarily deals with latina women in los angeles I talked about california's you know their their like race to win the fucking sterilization right wars um well, it sounds it was like also, they won that race yeah it was also happening like it was happening to poor white women in appalachia mm-hmm. poor black women in the South, poor mm-hmm. women in Puerto Rico, which is probably one of the most famous stories about forced sterilization. Usually when it when it gets brought up, if people know about it, they know about the women in Puerto Rico. Uh, a yeah. couple of people that I talked to about this story had never heard of it before. I'd, I've heard of it, but I don't know anything about it. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> I ha- I have to laugh so as not to like burst into flames. Right. Doctors in the South called these forced coerced sterilizations a Mississippi appendectomy. Ugh. They would have women. I've, I've heard in. that before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They would have women come in at this, you know, in the South, it was usually poor black women. Yeah. Women would come in uh, to the hospital for some other reason. The doctors would say, oh, you've got acute appendicitis and we need to remove your appendix. And they would actually permanently sterilize them. Yeah. In 1973, Minnie Lee and Mary Alice Ralph, I could not find consistent documentation. I know that they were 12 and 14, but everything I read about them had one being 12 and the other being 14. And then the next thing was the other being 12 and the other being so, but Minnie Lee and Mary Alice Ralph were sisters. They were 12 and 14 and they were sterilized without their consent. They had gone in, I believe after they'd been in a car accident Mm -hmm. 
and the doctor sterilized them. Their mother knows that she put an X. She was, she couldn't read or write. Mm -hmm. She put an X on some type of consent form, but she is like, I did not know that it was a sterilization consent form. Yeah. Also again, 12 and 14 and up to the point of them being sterilized permanently, social workers were coming around, I think every month, or I'm not sure how, how long it goes with this, but they were coming around regularly to administer shots of Depo Provera to the girls. Mm. So at 12 and 14, they were already being placed on birth control. Yeah. Just, it's real. Just, just, just cause. Yeah, just because it was like they had an older sister, Katie, who was 17, who the doctor's social workers forced her to get an IUD. Yeah. Like they were just like, you're obviously going to go out and get pregnant. And so we're just going to nip it in the bud before you have a chance to do that because you're poor and black in the South. Like, what else are you going to do? Yeah, sure. But yeah, Tucker Carlson, let's talk about white genocide. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Let's let's do it. Yeah, that's the problem we need to tackle. (laughs) bow tied dick, dick motherfucker okay so one last note before uh again in the sort of like overview of the the time and place of all of this california doctors and social workers and etc they believed that mexican women were both hyper fertile and hypersexual mm-hmm. they believed that if left unchecked undocumented mexican women would flood the population with anchor babies on welfare I mean, it's just so it goes to the like, you know, it's 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 like what the Nazis used against the Jews. It's just reducing human beings to quote vermin. Yes, it's the um, same. It's the same fucking thing. Yeah, it is. It is literally the same thing. Uh, and they learned it from watching us. Yep. So the Madrigal Ten, LAC USC's head of women's hospital, was a man named Doctor Edward James Killigan. Mm-hmm. Uh, he came to the hospital from Yale. He was revered, respected, adored. Everybody loved him. He pioneered the film of. He pioneered <laughs> the field of maternal fetal medicine. Okay. So that's who's running the show. Okay. Mm -hmm. Also at the medical center, we have a young medical resident named Dr. Bernard Rosenfeld. He was working slash studying at the med center. He was a, he's, he's a bit of, he's, he's our first hero of the story. He's like Mm -hmm. a wonderful 1970s sweet Jewish man who was, of course, like intimately aware of what had happened during the Holocaust with the Nazis. And his grandfather uh, had been an Orthodox rabbi and a Torah scholar and had really like raised him to stand up when he saw wrong being done to others. Okay. So Rosenfeld is like sitting there, he's working in this hospital and he's seeing all of these Chicana women being sterilized and also seeing that like they don't understand what's being done to them. Right. They aren't being told that the procedure is permanent and irreversible. The forms that they're being forced to sign aren't in Spanish. And, you know, again, many of the women have have little to no fluency in English. The forms all use medical jargon. Rosenfeld says that the senior residents tell him to, like, ask every pregnant woman if they wanted a tubal ligation regardless of age. Okay. Okay. Now, also just like a little sidebar, tubal ligation is, I'm not sure where it stands 
now. Uh-huh. I don't know if they've figured out how to make tying or snipping of all tubes reversible, but at that time it is irreversible. Yeah. And it is usually done on women who are like, I'm in a monogamous marriage. We're in a good spot. We are done having children. We are certain that like we are done. Which is great if like you are actively and informedly, that's not <laughs> Making the choice. <laughs> right. 100%. It's a, it's a, it's a fantastic option right. for women who are like, I have decided to not have any more babies. I will not change my mind. I am done. So Rosenfeld is seeing all this stuff and he's like, this is like, not right. So he, yeah. So he goes to kill again, at least, at least three times to tell him that the sterilizations are unethical and coercive. Yeah. Killigan quote, doubts that his doctors were doing anything wrong or that the women were being forcibly sterilized. Just looking away like, yes, you know, unicorns and sunshine. Yes. So Rosenfeld is like, okay. And he starts staying late at work and he starts copying all of these medical records. Oh, wow. And he starts writing letters. Well, hold on. I'm going to go back to the writing letters. He starts, he starts making copies of all these medical records and he starts jotting down notes about conversations that he's had with other doctors and residents there. Mm, And throughout these conversations, he's starting to like pick up stuff that, that he's hearing from these other doctors. And it's stuff like, you know, I picked up a whole new set of prejudices after starting this job. Mm -hmm. And uh, another one says all Mexicans do is screw drink and drive so this we're not talking implicit bias here we're talking explicit yes and in case anybody doesn't understand this it is impossible to adequately and compassionately treat someone if you think that they are less than yeah you can't do it it's just it's not possible (laughs) right it's not possible well because at a certain point people just turn into lab rats i mean right go back go back to my story like right clearly just the term expendables you know you see these as not human and and this is the way these women are being right treated yeah and they're not being seen as anything other than these like baby factories and a drain on you know social resources and and programs and taxpayer dollars and Mm -hmm. you know all of that stuff so he's making copies of the medical records. He's jotting down notes about these conversations that he's having with doctors. And then once he does that, he starts writing letters. He sends letters to the Congress of Racial Equality, the Office of Family Planning, Cosmopolitan Magazine, the NAACP, the Reverend Jesse Jackson, the National Mm -hmm. Urban Coalition. All of these letters say, hey, there are doctors at LACUSC that are coercing Chicano women into sterilization. Yeah. Not a single person responded to his letters. Really? Like even really. like even like the Jesse Jacksons of the world. Wow. Nope, not a single one. So finally, he goes to the LA Center for Law and Justice. And that is when a young UCLA law school graduate named Antonia Hernandez takes up the cause. Okay. Okay. So, and Antonia Hernandez was like 25, 26 years old. She like fresh out of law school. Yeah. Like baby uh, lawyer. Yeah, baby lawyer. When she starts working with Rosenfeld on this stuff, she like takes the notes, she starts looking it over. And her and, and her legal team start trying to build a class action civil rights case under Roe versus Wade, which had just happened in 1973. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. So for anybody who doesn't know 
what Roe versus Wade is, just in case. Landmark Supreme Court decision that says a pregnant woman has the liberty to choose to have an abortion without excessive government restriction. After seeing what Dr. Rosenfeld had collected, she spent months, she talks about driving around in her, I, I, I think she says she's got like a Dodge Dart or something, just driving all over East LA trying to find these women off the hospital records mm-hmm. because they don't have anything but the hospital records. Right. Okay. So she's Some driving. Some of which are probably like decade or more old. Right. Think. So she's trying to find them, you know, looking for them. When she finally does start to find them, she tells them, you know, you were sterilized in the hospital. Um, we think that we have, you know, a civil rights case and and we'd like, we'd like to go to court to sue the doctors in the hospital and all that stuff. Uh, Mm -hmm. Some of the women found out that they'd been sterilized when Antonia told them. Wow. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about these women. Many of them didn't want to, if they did know, they didn't want to talk about or acknowledge at all that they'd been sterilized. Yeah. Many would immediately change the subject when their husbands came into the room because she's literally, I mean, it's, it's, it's very Aaron Brockovich style. Yeah. And uh, we're going to get to that later, but it's very Aaron Brockovich style that she's like going through these records, driving up to people's houses and being like, did you know that this happened to you? Do you want to join the lawsuit? Like I said, a lot of them are finding out um, or they're being like, like we don't we don't talk about that here. I just can't imagine how those conversations went, particularly with the women who are just finding out through talking yeah. to her. Like, yeah, yeah. A lot of these women, like I said, they they like didn't want to talk about it. They wouldn't even acknowledge it. If they were finding out, they would immediately change the subject when their husbands walked into the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't want their husbands to know. A lot of them felt that their husbands wouldn't want them anymore because they'd become mujeres de la calle, which is basically like women, like street women mm. who who could sleep around on their husbands without risk of becoming pregnant. Yes. Antonia would have to like figure out ways to quietly exit their homes in a way that like wouldn't put these women at risk after her departure. But she also knows that this is like a crazy important case and she's finally able to gather 10 women. Mm -hmm. Those 10 women are Maria Hurtado, Rebecca Figueroa, Elena Orozco, Georgina Hernandez, Dolores Madrigal, who's the main plaintiff, who goes on to become the main plaintiff in the case, Estela Benavides, Guadalupe Acosta, Jovita Rivera, and Consuelo Hermosillo. All of the women were married. Most were employed. None were on welfare. Mm. They found as they started, as like, as Antonia started collecting the stories, her and her legal team found four big similarities between all of the women. Mm-hmm. All were repeatedly asked to give consent while in labor pains, sometimes while heavily medicated. Yeah. Almost all had to resist multiple attempts by doctors and nurses to submit to sterilization. Yeah. The language barrier and the lack of Spanish forms left many unaware that this was like a permanent procedure. Right. And some of the women never signed the forms and the docs just, just waived consent. Anyway. They were just like, we're doing it anyways. Yeah. Yeah. The women were mostly in their early 20s, like 23, 24. Mm. Dolores Madrigal was the oldest at 39. She married at 36 and she was like, okay, I'm probably just not going to have kids. And when she found herself pregnant at 39, she was thrilled. 
Yeah. She talks about how her husband was incredibly caring to her during her pregnancy, that they were poor and the only thing she craved was seafood and he would go out and get her seafood. Some of the women had up to five children. I believe uh, Maria Hurtado had five children. Others had like a couple. Others were sterilized after their first child. All of the women wanted to have multiple children. They talk about in the documentary, No Mas Bebes, they talk about putting the women on the stand and that they ask each of them, did you want to have big families? And one of them says like, you know, they they all say yes. And, uh, you know, they would be asked how many children do you want to have? And one of them says as many as God would allow. Mm-hmm. And, you know, their lawyers say, did you, you know, did, did you plan to have, like, did you, did you plan for a big family? Did you have all of their names picked out? And this woman goes, yes. Yeah. I had all of the names picked out. I knew I wanted to have a son named Adrian. Like this, it just, it like severed their lives. So most of them today, I, it's very, very hard to find information about these women today, but it seems like the ones that are alive, most of them today are their families, like childcare providers. Okay. So they take care of the grandbabies and the babies and like grandnieces and nephews and all that stuff. The aftermath of the sterilizations had, of course, obviously like really deep effects on these women. They suffered from PTSD. Some of their marriages dissolved. Some of the women isolated themselves from their communities. Yeah, Dolores Madrigal, who I just told you, her husband would go out and get her seafood when she was pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, he found refuge in alcohol after her mm. sterilization, and he eventually became physically abusive. Oh. Um, Maria Figueroa had a nervous breakdown, and she tried to take her own life. These effects were studied and documented by uh, Professor Carlos Velez Ibanez. He's an anthropologist and expert witness. Antonia Hernandez had reached out to him to ask him what the effects of sterilization would be on these women. He spent six months interviewing them and he found, he was like, they'd be terrible. Like the effects would be terrible. And then he went and spent six months interviewing them in preparation for the case and actually found that the effects were worse than he'd imagined. Wow. So we're going to take a break for just a second. We're going to talk about activism. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So uh, like I mentioned, Roe versus Wade is like, you know, sitting heavy in in like the public consciousness. And that's, that's all like raging while they are building the Madrigal 10 case. Hernandez's team, which includes Charles Navarrete, he's another Chicano UCLA law school grad and Gloria Molina. uh, She's a legal secretary and president of the brand new Comisión Feminil, a Chicano feminist organization. Mm. Quick sidebar, the Comisión Feminil signed on to the case as class representatives for the lawsuit. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they're building the case and they basically plan to argue that they're arguing it, like I mentioned, under Roe versus Wade with the idea that if a woman had a right to terminate a pregnancy, it stood to reason that she also had the right to bear children without government interference. Right. I mean, it's just so like, (laughs) yes, of, of fucking course. Like, yeah. Just what the fuck is wrong with people? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So Chicana feminists get wind of the forced sterilizations and they're pissed. Um, They, and and they realize that they're like, that like by the grace of God, that wasn't us. Yeah. You know? 
So they start organizing. They throw a protest rally at LAC USC. They're like in the park across the street. There's like tons of people, you know, they've got their signs and they're doing all this stuff. They talk about how like the SWAT team shows up and there's snipers that are sitting on top of the hospital with their guns pointed at them. Mm -hmm. So they really, really show up for these women who've been sterilized. But they get almost no support from the Chicano movement because that is a movement that is mostly run by men. And they do not believe that what is happening to these women is as important as the racial prejudice that they're experiencing. I mean, it's seen as a secondary issue. You know what I mean? It's one of those instances where I just want to sit here and apologize for my gender, but like, what can you do? You know? Yes. You're not the only one who needs to apologize, who who should feel like they need to apologize, I should say. That's what's going on. So at this point, it's kind of like Chicanas versus Chicanos, right? Like the Chicano movement is like, sorry, yeah, we don't really have time for that. That's like really a woman's issue. It's secondary to everything that we're doing. The Chicanos are like, okay, fuck you guys, because we've been on the front lines with you. We've been fighting your battles with you, but cool, you know, I get go have a good time. Uh, So they get pissed. And then they actually get pretty severe pushback from the feminist movement, which I'm using here to really mean white feminism. Okay. Uh, I'm like, what what could the pushback (laughs) even be? Oh, I'm steering myself. Yeah. So uh, for anybody who doesn't know the, and I mean, we've talked about a little bit in the night of terror Mm -hmm. uh, burnt ends episode that we did. Feminism in this country has historically meant white feminism. Mm -hmm. The issues faced by women of color have never really been enveloped into the feminist movement. I'm not going to get into it because I'm just going to start like yelling. Um, So, so yeah, so they get pushed back from the feminist movement. The reason for that is, is that one of the things that the Chicana feminist movement wants in support of what has happened to these women who've been sterilized is a mandatory 72 hour waiting period so that a doctor could come to a woman and say, Hey, you want to talk about sterilization? And then she would have a minimum of 72 hours to to think think about it, talk it over with her family, make the decision for herself. Right. (laughs) In the documentary, Gloria, Gloria Molino, who you'll remember was the legal secretary, who was also president of the Comisión Femenil. She talks about how the waiting period really offended white feminists because they, quote, wanted sterilization upon demand. Um, I mean, I. I, They essentially wanted to. there, There is such a massive disconnect here because what they're doing is saying, I want to be able to make reproductive choices and I want them done the second I want them done. It is an incredibly privileged and ignorant view of reproductive rights because it doesn't take into account cultural values, language barriers, religious beliefs, nothing. Well, and it's just, it's, it's like taking the most bumper sticker worthy, Mm. simplistic position. Cause I'm, I guess maybe I'm a little unclear on this. Like the 72 hour waiting period, does that apply? If you actively go to a doctor and say, I want this done, like they're still going to make you wait 72 hours. Is that, is that the case? I, I mean, I would assume, cause I think, I think it, maybe it's kind of like buying a gun. You know what I mean? That they're like, yeah. okay, here's the information, you know, so, take, take all of the information, come back to us in three days. And if you want it, cool, let's do it. 
I mean, okay. Like this is also sterilization, not the termination of a pregnancy. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So there needs to be a distinction there. And I'm just like, I don't see why there couldn't have been some sort of discussion about like an exemption. If you are actively requesting the procedure, then it like could be assumed that you've thought about it for more than three days. You know, I don't think that it was in white, white feminists wheelhouse at the time to consider reproductive freedom outside of a white woman's lens. Right. Well, and it's just, it's so like, it's something you and I talk about all the time. Mm -hmm. Is it's like when you get to these like dogmatic positions, what happens is you lose the ability to think through any sort of nuance. Right. And then if you're coming at it from this racial privilege lens, the nuance that's going to get lost is exactly what you're talking about. Additionally, you also need to understand. So the, the reason that all of these women were sterilized while they were giving birth is that they were all women who had C-sections. So the doctors were basically pulling like a twofer. You know what I mean? They're like, while we're in there getting the baby out, why don't we just stay in there and just snip the tubes and then we're done. A sterilization is a surgery. It's a, it, it's a surgery. I think probably now you can do it laparoscopically and abortion is a procedure. There are two like vastly different things. It's just the level of blinders. That you have to put on to get been out of shape about this three day waiting period. Right. And I think, I mean, this is insane to me. Right. This might be me like editorializing a little bit, but it also seems like I can't imagine that there wasn't a judgment of women who were like, if God wants me to have 10 kids, I'll have 10 kids. I'll have those 10 babies. Like I want to be a mother. I want to have a large family. Yeah. And it seems like an easy jump for me to make that white feminists would look down on that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think whether that was overt or covert that, that was, that had to have been a play. Right. Because we know this from, I'm sure people, we, have experienced like the sort of knee jerk turning your nose up at people who want to be homemakers who want to you right. know, focus on family you know right. immediately seeing people as like oh you're you're just like a conservative pawn or you're a redneck right. or you know or you only want that because, or right or you only want that because that's what like you know misogynistic patriarchy has told you that you're good for and, and that i, stuff, but I like, know what you want better than better you than do. you know what you want yeah. and and the whole thing about the fight for reproductive justice is that it is the freedom to choose. Right. It's the freedom to choose whether or not you are not ready for a baby and you need to terminate a pregnancy or you are happy with your 11th pregnancy and you're looking forward to it. Right. It's that is what reproductive freedom is about. It is not a one-sided coin. It just, it's so, it's so like, I don't know, I think to you and me and to a lot of people that seems so like, duh, common sense that it's amazing to me, the people on the supposedly pro-choice side miss that. Yeah. It's, um, is myopic the right word? Yeah. I think think so. (laughs) It's a very like narrow view. It's a very like nearsighted view of of reproductive justice and and freedom. So (laughs) 
That's yeah. what's going on with the white feminists. Yeah. Uh, Antonia Hernandez says in the documentary, she says, quote, I didn't care whether they agreed with it or not. I wasn't there to please them. I was there to protect poor women who under very vulnerable circumstances were being abused. Yeah. So she was like, fuck you, white feminists. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm not I'm not here to help you out if you're not here to help us out. So go F yourself. Right. I also just want to like put in a little thing here that the Chicana movement is really what is responsible for reproductive justice. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, if you know what you're kind of woman, Venmo her some money for a coffee. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. This is also, I think part of the reason why, I mean, the thing is enraging. I think I would be, I, I am, you know, I mean, hearing about the black women in the South, hearing about the white women in Appalachia, I am incensed by this because it is just so dehumanizing to have this, choice taken away from you. Yeah. I think I am doubly affected by this because in watching the movie, like so many, so many of these women just like reminded me of my mom. Yeah. You know, and oh, of course, she, and my mom was in that position when she came to this country, Right, you she know, was she about was about that age. She was, a, she was a South American immigrant. Like she was having children in dealing with doctors and nurses who mm-hmm. did not speak her language. Yep. Um, you know, and it just like yep. could have gone very differently for her. Uh, if things had, you know, been a little different. So, okay. So let's talk about the lawsuit. Okay. okay, The first thing I'm going to tell you about the lawsuit is that the firm that defends the hospital, it is La Follette Johnson Schroeder and DeHaas. A senior partner from that firm goes to a junior partner named Nancy Menzies Vecine. And he's like, Hey, do you want to like come in and be on the case? Because he has misremembered her name mm. <laughs> as not Menzies, but Mendez. So he, okay. okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so just, she's oh. like, Menzies is my name. It's, it's like, Scottish. There's, a, there's, there's a lot of just, <laughs> yeah. It, just yeah. fucking dumbness in this whole yes. story. Yeah. Yes. And the senior partner is like, eh, two, eighty, like, Two out of three ain't bad, (laughs) you know, she'll work. So he puts Uh, her, uh, he puts her on the case. The case is officially filed as Madrigal versus Killigan, though all 10 women are part of the case and they are suing the hospital, the doctors who performed the sterilizations, Dr. Killigan, the County of LA, the state of California and the U S government. Okay. Um, All of the get get what's yours from yeah. everybody yeah. yeah they were like burn it down all of the doctors are like confused and of course they are and offended of that course they are. they're being sued dr killigan seems to have like no understanding that this was morally or ethically wrong. He he didn't feel that he'd done anything wrong. He felt that he was practicing good medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, he's actually quoted as saying, if you see a patient for, okay, hold on, I'm going to backtrack. I want you to pay special attention to this quote that I'm about to give you. And then I'm going to check back in with you right after okay. I say it. So he's on the record as saying, If you see a patient for the first time who is in labor, who has a large number of children, and one of the things you discuss with her is the possibility of tubal ligation, I think it's perfectly appropriate. So what are the red flags in that sentence for you? Okay, read it it back one more time because I was Mm -hmm. busy digging my fingernails into my palm. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. 
If you see a patient for the first time who is in labor, who has a large number of children, and one of the things you discuss with her is the possibility of tubal ligation, I think it's perfectly appropriate. Okay. I mean, one red flag is like, what does her having a large family have to do with fuck all Mm -hmm. in terms of like a medical decision? Mm Mm-hmm. And then it's like, he's like the possibility of tubal, like, like, this isn't what, like, no one's discussing anything with these women. They're like, check this box or you'll die uh-huh. that you can't read. And then we're going to do this and not tell you. And you're going to yeah. find out from a lawyer 10 years later. Like, right. That's the thing is that there's no discussion and there's no yeah, possibility. It, it's framing it in the most benign way he can to the point of being an outright fucking lie is what that. Additionally, I'm going to tell you, okay. So for anybody who doesn't know, I don't know if I've talked about this before on the podcast. I'm a, I work, one of my like side gigs is I work for, I work for the university medical schools, standardized patient program. And what Mm -hmm. that means is that I'm basically a role play encounters with med students so they can practice their, essentially their bedside manner on me. Right, right. It's a huge program. It's super cool. A lot of our friends have done it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's something that like I really love because my father had an incredible bedside manner. His mm-hmm. mother was a nurse and she was she had an incredible bedside manner. And so like training doctors to do this is something that is like I'm very passionate about. So it's super cool yeah. that I get to do that. The interesting thing about being a standardized patient is that now I have become in doing that, I have become a better advocate for myself when oh, yeah. I'm with doctors because I can sit there and be like, you're not paying attention to me. You know, you're being unprofessional. You aren't sharing information with me, all this stuff. But as a standardized patient, I can look at this sentence and see one first time uh-huh. in labor. Uh-huh. So the first time you're reading this patient is when she is in labor, right? You are assuming that she has a large number of children because she yeah. is of Mexican descent. Yeah, that's true. And you, yeah, again, or talk, if you want to discuss the possibility of tubal ligation with a woman when she is not in labor, when, when the you baby have is built not a relationship, crowning or whatever. Crowning? Like- yeah. 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 Cool. Have that discussion with her. Let her know what her options are. But that is not what happened to these women. Well, and like, let me just say, like, I guarantee these discussions weren't happening in Utah with large Mormon families. Mm, oh, really? Am point. I wrong? No, uh, no I went. Okay. No, no. That's me being like, good point. Yeah. Like really yeah, I good mean, point. It's, it's, it's not the large family. It's, it's no. the Mexican that mm-hmm. is. Yeah. 100%. It's, it's yeah. again, it's, it's a hundreds of Mexican anchor babies on welfare, right. overrunning the population. Okay. So <laughs> Dr. Killigan says that other doctors today, still, they interview, they'd interview Dr. Killigan. They interview several of these doctors in the documentary mm-hmm. and they're like, just flabbergasted. Yeah. They're like, they, they, one of them is like, ultimately this comes down to a case of, of he said, she said they <sighs> like the digging he, my fingernails yeah. in my palm. Again. Yeah. yeah. They say that the idea that they were targeting Mexican American women is absurd, that the case was very embarrassing for them having their professionalism called into question, you know, on the news and on the front page of the newspaper that they were just doing their jobs. In response to that, the Madrigal 10 want to know why they did it then. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Maria Figueroa says, God, she says in the documentary that she thinks that they thought of themselves like little gods. And she does this like marionette gesture when she does it. And Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, that they were just like, you know, they were like, we know best. 
we, right. we're going to get in here and we're going to control all of this. Well, yeah. I mean, again, like just going back to my story, the MK Ultra thing, I mean, it's the same fucking thing. It's these, these people who are allowed to act with impunity and no one's questioning them and yeah. the guardrails are not in place. Yeah. And they just think they fucking know. Yeah. Like, and, and, and like, it's so crazy because like, I don't think that they're lying. Like, I don't think that the doctors oh, are lying. I'm I sure think, I, th- I think like they seem really and truly unaware mm-hmm. of how monstrous their actions were. Yeah. Cause again, it, it's, they're acting with this just incredible myopia. Yes. And not even aware of their fucking. Yeah. Racism. Yeah. Dr. Killigan in there, he says, I support a woman's right to choose. Mm-hmm. And it's like, he How supports you... a white woman's right to choose. Like, <laughs> or he supports a woman's right to terminate a pregnancy. Yeah. Again, not <sighs> connecting the dots. Yeah. Like it's, I mean, it's just, and I think the documentary does a really good job of showing this and of like providing a very fair, like giving them a fair shot to tell their story. And mm-hmm. then just like, just being like, oh, well, you guys are going to dig your own hole. Like <laughs> yeah. we're just going to sit here. But yeah, like I, 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 <sighs> I, these aren't like mustache twirling, you know, they're, no. they're, they're, they're really, they're like, we were good doctors practicing good medicine. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Okay. Yeah. I so, mean, I, <laughs> I, I, no, I, I, I 100% believe that they believe that it's just, it's inc- maybe it's just cause I've never been a doctor and I'm not of that generation or whatever. It's just mind blowing to me. That they didn't uh, what, see what they were doing. The thing is, is that I can I can understand that they didn't see it then. What's actually scary to me is that they still don't see it today. Yeah, they're you just know calcified. that they're right. That they're not like you know what we were working. Yeah, with what we knew and right. had it. If I had it to do again today, I would choose differently. Like yeah. nothing. They're just like befuddled. Yeah. Okay. So the case is presided over by the honorable, again, heavy air quotes around mm-hmm. honorable. I just judge. saw your face, like, you sounded like you smelled a fart when you said that. So the honorable judge, Jesse Curtis, I hate him. I hate him. He immediately files a motion to have Killigan and another doctor removed from the lawsuit as they weren't responsible. This is the judge? Yes. They also decide that not to do- That seems not a, the judge's job to decide. Here's this. Okay. So hold on. So they decide not to do this with a jury. They decide oh, to just argue it for the judge. And trial. the defense files a motion to say, hey, we really should excuse Killigan and this other guy, Dr. I Freeman, because okay. they really weren't involved. I can't, I'm trying to make sure, I want to make sure that this is not somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> But basically what's going on with that, the reason that it's like Killigan and this other doctor aren't responsible, even though Killigan was the head of women's medicine was because, I mean, Killigan's basically like, I don't know. I wasn't there. I didn't see the conversations that were happening with these women. I wasn't present at their sterilizations. I have, he says in the documentary, I have talked to those doctors about what has happened and I believe them. Well, it, I mean, it, but it's bullshit because Rosenfeld tried to talk to him about it. So, like, you did fucking know. Like, you like you just you just didn't want to look into it. 
Right. And he's, and the thing is, is that it's like, he knew that there were some rumblings about it, but he was like, not like, no, not, not in my hospital. Yeah. Like everything's above board in my hospital. Uh, so the main question of the case boils down to, does a woman have the inalienable cultural and biological right to choose? And mm-hmm. cultural is really what That's going to be the sticking point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's really where the divide happens between Chicana feminists and white feminists here mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No local doctors wanted to testify against the hospital or the doctors. Of course. Not. Uh, Dr. Rosenfeld, our, our sweet Jewish hero, was accused by the California Medical Board of taking money from the women's lawyers to like make up stories about what he'd seen. They threatened mm-hmm. to take away his medical license. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Mm-hmm. There was only one key witness who agreed to testify against the doctors. And she's, uh, I mean, what are we at now? She's, she's, she's another one of our heroes. Her name is Dr. Karen banker. She gets on the stand and she paints a grim fucking picture of the maternity ward of the hospital. She Mm -hmm. said that women were laboring on gurneys in the hallways, Mm. that they'd come into the hospital and be descended upon by three residents for a physical exam, one at the right breast, another at the left, a third doing a vaginal exam, all calling out results to a fourth resident who was taking notes. She said, quote, it was like rape. Yeah. She says that she saw a nurse waving a hypodermic needle with painkillers filled with painkillers in front of a mother's face saying, you want this, you want this, then sign. Jesus. She also says that the first time she met Dr. Killigan, he boasted about getting a big grant to cut the black and Latino population. Oh, so fuck this guy. (laughs) I wasn't involved. I didn't know what was like, seriously go fuck yourself. Yeah. Carlos Velez Ibanez, who I believe I talked about earlier, he's the anthropologist. Mm -hmm. He testified that the women had suffered tremendously and needlessly as a result of these forced sterilizations. They brought in a Dr. Don Sloan. He was a New York gynecologist who testified that women in deep labor were unable to give informed consent for sterilization. I did a informal poll of three mothers that I know. They've been through all forms of childbirth with drugs, without drugs, natural childbirth, cesarean section. And I asked all of them in those moments of deep labor, if somebody had come to you and said, you need to sign this, you need to sign this, you have to sign this. Would you have had your wits about you enough to read the paper comprehend what was on that paper and sign, I wouldn't even get to the end of the question before all three of them laughed Yeah, and said, no, no way, no way. One of the women was my mother. Mm-hmm. And I asked her, you know, if you, as somebody who didn't have a, she wasn't as fluent in English then as she is now, mm-hmm. you know, and I said, if the thing was in English, would you have been able to read it? And she was like, probably not. And I said, if it was in medical jargon and my mom, she is a highly educated woman. She said, well, it might've been easier for me to understand the medical jargon because there's not that much difference in it between Spanish to English. And I said, but if you weren't an educated woman and she was like, oh no way. Yeah. I asked the other two, one of whom has about as much fluency in Spanish as these women had with English. And again, she laughed. She was like, oh my God, no, no. The third said that she was so desperate for the pain to stop that she was like, honestly, I might might have done anything. Yeah. Yeah. 
that was that was my deeply scientific informal poll of three childbearing women that I know. The prosecution brought in a handwriting expert who examined the, the signatures on the consent forms and the signatures on the forms that these women signed when they were admitted to the hospital. And he, I believe it was a he, he basically found like he compared them and he said that the signatures between both forms indicated that the women were in considerable pain when they signed mm-hmm. the consent forms. Like you, and I think they, they show it in, they show at least one of the signatures on the consent forms in the documentary. And you're like, it's clear that that's not like it's someone's a, normal signature. It's a scribble. Yeah. It's yeah. And, and, and it's like jerky and sharp and stuff. You know what I mean? It's it, yeah. like, it's clear that, that they were not okay when they were doing that. Okay. So that's, those are those are the witnesses. There is only one journalist from a local LA TV stations who covered the case. Mm-hmm. His name is Frank Cruz, and he is the first Latino anchor on LA news stations. Oh, okay. He's the only one who covers the case. Wow. On June 30th, 1978, Judge Curtis rules in favor of the doctors. Of course he does. His ruling says, quote, this case is essentially the result of a breakdown in communication between patients and doctors. All plaintiffs are Spanish-speaking women whose ability to understand and speak English is limited. The cultural background of these women contributed to the problem. So blame the women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Carlos Velez Ibanez says that he is certain that the judge twisted his testimony to rule in favor of the doctors and blame the women for the way that they felt. Mm-hmm. Um, judge Curtis basically ruled that the emotional breakdowns post procedure were caused by their inability to give birth and raise big families, which is an important part of Latino culture and yeah. not by the sterilization itself. So uh, just... <sighs> Like, just again, to reiterate, he says the trauma is not from the sterilization, but rather from the fact that they won't go on to have big families. But why can't they have big families? Because of the sterilization. Fucking moron. Yes. You like fucking ghoul. Um, Yeah. Yeah. He basically believed that the women were at fault and it was their cultural background that heightened the supposed trauma that they experienced. Oh, I, I can, I can see why you're in such a rage. Yeah. You were doing yeah. I, I hate this man. Yeah. Um, this is where my dad would come in and he'd be like, hate is a very strong word, but I hate <laughs> him. Okay. So that ruling comes down and like right after the ruling is read, Antonia Hernandez is like, she leaves the courtroom and mm-hmm. she's trying to leave the courthouse because she's like, she knows that she's on the verge of tears. Yeah. She gets stopped by Frank Cruz. Mm-hmm. the TV reporter. And he grabs her, he hugs her. And he says, you cannot cry. I'm going to put, I'm going to put you on TV. I'm going to interview right now. You need to be strong. You need to project strength. Mm-hmm. And Antonio Vandel, uh, I'm sorry, Antonio Hernandez is like, okay, let me get my shit together. Let's do this. Mm-hmm. The judge, like I said, rules in favor of the doctors and decides that no damages are to be awarded to the 10 women who brought the lawsuit. However, it is ruled that forms will be made available in multiple languages. Mm-hmm. They will be made available to the patient to understand and accept or decline procedures. Okay. A 72-hour waiting period to come to a decision once presented with the option of sterilization is put in place. Okay. It is decided that welfare benefits would not be terminated. Mm-hmm. even though none of these women were on welfare. The Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund was established 
uh, out of this to advocate for women's rights and to inform Latina women to be aware of what was going on with their doctors and report abuse. So it gave them it gave them an avenue to report abuse. Okay. The like I said, the Madrigal Ten were awarded no reparations for the abuse they suffered at the hands of the LAC USC Medical Center. California legislature would go on to unanimously repeal its sterilization law, uh, okay, the good. law that had been put in place in 1909. They repealed that law in 1979 after this right. case. Antonia Hernandez would go on to become president of the Mexican American Legal Defense Fund. Gloria Molina became the first Chicana elected to the LA City Council. She oh, also nice. oversaw the reform and reconstruction at the medical center. Okay. Yeah. So she was like, I'm watching you bitches. Yeah. Frank Cruz, our intrepid TV reporter would go on to become a member of the board of trustees at the university of Southern California. Okay. In May of 2021, it was reported that California was set to approve reparations of up to $25,000 per victim of the forced sterilizations that occurred starting in 1909. In 2018, the hospital publicly apologized to the women that had been forcibly sterilized there for reasons that are unclear, at least to me, none of the women that were sterilized at the medical center, including the Madrigal 10, are eligible to apply for reparations. Mm, Dr. Bernard Rosenfeld is, as far as I can tell, practicing medicine in Houston, Texas. Um, (laughs) I read a little article. He's practicing women's medicine. I read an article that in 2015, he got in trouble for providing illegal abortions. Um, Mm. Illegal (laughs) abortions. Texas law. Yeah, he's in Texas. Texas law says that you can only provide 50 abortions a year. Um, And if you do more than that, you basically have to declare yourself an abortion clinic. I 100% understand why Rosenfeld did not want to declare himself as an abortion clinic in the state of Texas. (laughs) He was doing, he was doing, I think as many as two abortions a day. So he's just like, like, fuck these stupid laws. Yeah. He was like the fucking like, like underground railroad of abortions. Like he was just like, do you need to get an abortion? Then you can come in here. And I think he would like do them after hours and stuff. I do not believe that there was anything untoward about it. I think he just wanted to provide access to well, safe he, abortions sure, to Texas women. He sure seems like someone who's like not a go along to get along. Like he thinks the law is stupid. So he's going to do what he thinks is right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, always when you're drinking water. Always when I'm drinking. Okay, I'm gonna have. I'm gonna take an actual sip. Okay. The Madrigal Ten have moved on with their lives. The documentary shows six women who agreed to be filmed. Five from the lawsuit and Melvina Hernandez, which is the opening story that I told you about. Mm-hmm. And it shows them, you know, taking care of grandbabies and spending yeah. time with their adult children. <sighs> okay. Couple of things. First of all, there's a shot of Consuelo Hermosilla, and she's like, she's in her kitchen. She's taking care of what I assume to be a grandbaby because the kid's like two. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's talking to her in Spanish and she's making plates of food. And she scoops some beans out of a pot and she like looks at the camera and she goes, These beans have cheese. Is that okay? Does everybody eat cheese? So she's just making food for the film crew. Oh. <laughs> and she says, She's like, This is what I wanted to do. 
Yeah. I wanted to take care of babies and make big pots of food. And yeah. this is what I wanted to do. A lot of, it also shows a lot of scenes of these women's adult children finding out for the first time that their mothers were forcibly sterilized. Ugh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dolores Madrigal, her son is like, what? Yeah. And she's like, yeah. She was like, do you not remember me being like sad and scared and stuff all the time? And she starts to cry and he goes to hug her and he's like, mama. And she's like, yeah, pues, yes, yes, it pasó. Like she's, which is so like, she's like crying, but she's like, it's fine. It's done. And like, they have a brief interview with him where he's like, it's a good thing that I didn't learn about this earlier Mm -hmm. because the type of person that I used to be, I wouldn't have been able to keep myself from going after the people who had done this. Wow. Yeah. I mean, can't blame him for feeling that way. Yeah. I mean, neither can I, you know, they remain as deeply affected today. The women as they were 40 years ago, Carlos Velez Ibanez, you know, recorded these conversations with these women and you hear one identified woman. I don't think it ever says who it was, but she says, me, me acabo la canción, which means my song has ended. Mm. In another, he asks, he's talking to Consuelo Hermosilla and he asks her when she was operated on. In 1973, she answers, do you still dream? She says, I always dream. I have my baby. I dream. I get to Mexico with my son I had after my girl. This is the, like, this is a dream. Obviously she never had that son. Right. Uh, I, I dream I get to Mexico with my son I had after my girl. People want to see him, but I won't show them because I have a surprise, like a miracle. You understand? He's something that's mine that nobody else can see. That's what I dream. He says, since the operation, you're not ready to express what you feel. And she says, I don't feel as brave. (laughs) Near the end of the film, Dolores Madrigal's son, who I just told you learned of her sterilization during the filming, Mm -hmm. tells his mother that after her lawsuit, they changed the law so this couldn't happen to other women. Dolores in Spanish says, thank God. I hope they keep their word. Yeah. And that is the absolutely heartbreaking story of the Madrigal 10. Yeah, that's fucking awful. I mean, they lost the battle in terms of the court case, but it does sound like they won the war in terms of what was going yeah. on in California. Obviously, there's a much larger war around reproductive yeah. rights and everything. Yeah, yeah. Still going on, but that's... that's. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd heard of some of the stories of this happening in the South. I'd never heard of this in California. Yeah, the majority of the the majority of the women who were sterilized during childbirth were women of color and of that number the majority of them were were Chicana women. Mm-hmm. Um the fact that they didn't have full fluency in English was was used against them yeah, as weaponized. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this is a good thing to, this is a good thing to know. It's obviously like an awful story. <laughs> right. Well, and one thing that's making me think about a little bit is I think you know, obviously we're living in this time with the pandemic and the vaccines and all the discussions about, you know, anti-vaxxers, vaccine hesitancy. And there's a lot of, I would say on our side of the issue, cause you know, Full disclosure, I am as pro-vaccine as yes, like I'm as, like as am I chomping at the bit to get my third shot. And I want right. everyone to get vaccinated. But there's on our side of the issue, I think there's a smugness that is maybe ill-informed about the issue of vaccine hesitancy, where everyone's assuming it's all MAGA and like yoga and non people and everything. And I just want to like caution people, like obviously we all support vaccines. We wanna 
find ways to convince people to get the vaccine. But like, there are some communities that have very real reasons that they feel the hesitancy to immediately trust the word of doctors. And like, that needs to be Right. And this understood. is understood. Yes, it needs to be understood and and acknowledged. And what we need are not a bunch of people hopping, you know, on Twitter and Instagram and, and TikTok and berating people for not. But what we need are people from those communities mm-hmm. to go into those communities. We need, you know, we need Latinx doctors, we need black medical professionals, we need trusted patient advocates. Mm-hmm. Um, Um, especially if you're dealing with, because the thing is, is like, you know, my story centers on Mexican American immigrants in California, but the truth of the matter is that this is something that was taking, it was happening to Russian immigrants, Polish Mm -hmm. immigrants, Italian immigrants, like they were being sterilized as well. And we need people to be, we need, we need advocates to go into these communities and make them feel safe about taking the vaccine because they have very real fears. Whether or not they should have these fears is not actually the point. Mm -hmm. It's actually about understanding why they will be, you know, like wary of of somebody who says, you need to do this. You need to come in and do this. You need to do this right now. Don't ask any questions because they're, they, because these, these women are still dealing with PTSD. Right. And this is why bullying people. I mean, and it's like, I want to make a hard distinction. Like the fucking idiots yelling at doctors after school board meetings who, who are like, advocating you know mask wearing and right harassing doctors saying we know where you live fucking trade or whatever was happening like fuck those people like i have no sympathy but when we're talking about these specific communities and the trauma that has existed within these communities around these issues right like bullying people yelling at them shaming people that's not the way to go about it well and what you have to like you know again the distinction that you have to make is between people who have all of the information at their fingertips and people from shadow communities yeah and that is where the distinction lies. Right. You have to talk about people who don't have access to healthcare. If they do have access to healthcare, it, they're dealing with, I mean, again, these doctors are all still practicing. Right. These well, doctors are still out there. I mean, we still hear stories about women of color, people of color being dismissed or mistreated by the healthcare system. Yeah. So like they're not going in with the level of trust that like you or I or other people listening may have who've had overall maybe pretty good experiences in the healthcare system. You know? Right. Well, and that's also, I mean, that brings up another point too, that when we're talking about, you know, I'm talking about medical jargon and that's, you know, again, that's a thing that I can ding people for when I'm evaluating these med students mm-hmm. is if you're going to talk to me about a procedure that needs to happen, you need to make sure that I understand it. And I don't know if anybody like knows this. <laughs> so uh, one of the things that they talk about in like fund raising writing. So like when you're writing letters to solicit donations and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. uh, thank you letters, that kind of stuff. The rule is to write at a sixth to eighth grade level. Right. That's, I mean, you know, (laughs) that's not medical jargon, but it's also like people who are donating to the arts, you know, are they're generally, I mean, not, not all the time, but they're generally educated people, Right. you know, they're literate and all those things. And still it is 
right between a sixth to eighth grade reading comprehension. I mean, level. cause that's, well, that's the level most people speak at. Like even right. those of us who are pretty like, you know, I'm a writer, a master's degree, you know, I, I have a pretty big vocabulary. I generally speak it probably like, like maybe a high school level, you know, that, right. that's just, that's vernacular English. Right. And when you are dealing with, like when you were being hit with, Hey, this has gone wrong. This thing that, you know, you've always been like that. You've been scared about, like if somebody is getting a cancer diagnosis, right. They need to understand what's happening to them. Mm -hmm. And that's why I say like patient advocates and, you know, there were movements, right. And places like New York and stuff where they, it was people going like door to door to register, you know, like Mm -hmm. the the abuelitas and the abuelitos. And to be like, we know you don't have internet. We know you don't really get how it works. We know you don't have a mobile phone. We're going to register you for your vaccine. So you can go and get, here's the information. I'm going to talk to you about it, Mm -hmm. but that's what's necessary. We're talking about people who don't have all of the information, versus people who do have all of the information and are choosing to take a a horse dewormer. Well, yeah. Yeah. And again, I I have very little sympathy for those people, but you know, it's like people who don't have the information and who also probably have had negative experiences. You know, so you got the two things compounding and it doesn't have to be that you were like went through a forced sterilization. Like some of the horror stories I've heard from people, often women, not often, but not always women of color dealing with doctors is just oh. it's like it's like microaggressions and things like throwing like medical jargon and then treating you like you're stupid if you don't understand it things mm-hmm. that frankly never happen to me when i go to the doctor mm-hmm. so like but that's I mean, real I'm- yeah, it's it's real. It's also something that uh, I'm going to use a word that it is it, it is it is a word that I have heard. I know it might be controversial, but the people from this community seem to prefer this word to any other sort of euphemisms. But within the fat population, mm-hmm. uh, they are terribly treated. I mean, terribly treated by doctors. Another another quick. I mean, story. that's the worst treatment that I've had from doctors, and I would I don't want to overstate it. But like, I've had doctors be shitty about my weight. Yeah. One of the, this doesn't have anything to do with weight, but one of the cases that I portray in the standardized patient program is a woman who it's, it's, it's intimate partner violence. Mm -hmm. And she comes in, she says she thinks she has an infection and that she'd also like a pregnancy test. We use makeup to give me bruises on my neck. Like I've been choked. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's like. The whole case is monosyllabic responses, little to no eye contact. Right. It is it is very clearly a woman who is, I mean, she's terrified. She's being abused by her husband. She has a two-year-old daughter. It's, it's, it's a tough case. Yeah. And I have been floored by the absolute callousness of some of the medical students that I have mm-hmm. uh, encountered during that case. They're <laughs> like... I'm going to get in trouble for doing this, but ah, um, I was doing that case at one point. And uh, so the way it works is that it's several students in the room and then they sort of tag team. So like, mm-hmm. you know, the, one of them will start an interview and when they run into a problem, they'll kind of like time out and another student will hop in and blah, blah, blah. So I was doing the case. I believe that I was working with a female med student and she timed out because she was struggling a little bit and, you know, they started to talk and 
I'm in the room while this is happening. So mm-hmm. I hear all of this. I don't like go away or anything. I'm just sort of like in, you know, I, <laughs> I just go into like sleep mode a little bit, mm-hmm. but I'm in the room and they start talking about the case. And this one med student is like, oh yeah, if, if I saw this woman in like the ER, like I would just pass her off to some other doctor. Jesus. And, you know, goes on to be like, you know, I just, I wouldn't be able to handle it. Cause she's going to sit there and she's going to be like, oh, oh, but I love him. And he really loves me. And oh and my God. That. Yeah. And I was sitting there and I was like, please do not give this guy a degree. Like this <laughs> yeah. is the last fucking person who no, deserves. Because that's not only like he doesn't understand. It's like an active choice to not be empathetic. Well, and it like. The open disgust and disdain that Mm -hmm. he had for somebody in this situation. Yeah. Really kind of like rocked me back a little bit. Oh, I've, I've talked to women who've had like that exact kind of experience with doctors. So like, yeah, they are going to give this guy a degree because, yeah. of, because a bunch of them have degrees and they're out there practicing. Yeah. And like, this is not, by the way, we should say like, I know your dad's a doctor. This is not an anti-doctor rant, but like doctors be better. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And it is like, and if you is... are one of the better doctors and you see your colleagues, behaving this way like do you know it's like we talked about uh, the doctor death documentary like right. the heroes of that story were the two doctors who finally were like what the fuck this guy can't keep operating on people yeah and wouldn't let it go like we need more doctors like that yeah who are yeah, like no this do. is not acceptable we need to raise the bar yeah and we don't need more lawyers like greg abbott who worked on that case he defended, oh, yeah, he Jesus. defended Baylor um, oh, wow. and w- he defended Baylor and he was instrumental in saying that they would cap damages at 250,000. So of fuck you. Fuck you. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, we've, we've, I'm sure we could continue talking about this for four hours, yeah. uh, but I'll leave you with, don't be scared to advocate for yourself. Uh, mm-hmm. we talked about this a little bit before in other episodes, don't be scared to advocate for yourself as a patient. You have rights as well. Get out there and vote. <laughs> please. If you are looking for ways to help, there are a lot of great organizations like Jolt. I believe they're Jolt Acción. They are working to mobilize the young Latinx vote in Texas. uh, And they can probably really use our help right now. If we have any other resources, we'll post them on social media. Please, please, please go check out this documentary. It's called No Mas Bebes. You can Mm -hmm. find it on Vimeo. You can rent it for $6 and it's probably the best six dollars i've ever spent i don't know if they're still doing it but for a time at least all of the proceeds that they were making from the renting of the video on vimeo were going to like a defense fund to take care of women and advocate for them okay Uh, i'll post a link in the show notes yes so go and check it out other than that stay safe stay weird stay curious and we will see you guys in two weeks bye bye Friends will blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.